Hello and welcome to an exciting new episode of Batman Nightcast, a proud part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network that chronicles the greatest comic book adventures of the Cape Crusader. I'm Chris Franklin. And I'm Ryan Daly. And today we're returning to the classic run of Detective Comics from the creative team of Steve Englehart, Marshall Rogers, and Terry Austin. But before we dive back in with the next two issues, we should plug Network Friend and my occasional boss, Dan Greenfield's 13th Dimension. Because Dan is currently running a series called Inside the Batman, the Steve Englehart Interviews, which, as you can imagine, are interviews with, yes, Steve Englehart. Uh, Englehart and Dan are discussing this classic run issue by issue. Sounds familiar, but this is actually Steve Englehart. Uh, it's, you know, it's like having a comic commentary track with the writer or director i guess he would he's a writer so he'd be the writer (laughs) in a movie sense so if you are listening to this episode and listening to our series on these i'm sure you'll enjoy reading the writer's own thoughts on the run which defined his career in a lot of ways so head over to 13thdimension.com and there's that's always a good time there and i write some articles there and rob kelly writes some articles there so the guy's got good taste you know so you can't go wrong. <laughs> I should listen to Engelhart's interviews first, and then just say the exact opposite when we do our when we review our episode. Well, Engelhart hated Batman. <laughs> he, did, he did not want to do this series. He hated the Golden Age. He thought the Joker was ridiculous. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it shows. Yeah, that's definitely the impression you get from reading these. Yeah, of course. <laughs> of course, none of that's true. But, that, you know, so, so don't take this soundbite out of context. Um, but, yeah, so, yeah, that definitely I've been enjoying that. And one, oddly enough, the one that popped up just today is – about the penguin issue that mm-hmm. we're getting ready to cover. So, yeah. so, but hey, before we get into that, I think uh, we we do want to plug something else that we've mentioned before, but I can finally talk about the book Zlong Zak Zawi. Yeah, yeah, I I finally got around to watching the two episodes and reading your essay on it. I'm sorry it took me this long. Oh, cool, cool. So, yeah, that, that's uh, that. Well, thank you. I appreciate I appreciate the support. Yeah. So I've been I've been going through and reading the articles in the book myself i actually was like just plowing through it and i i got into so many podcasts i still got a few chapters left which but i i'm like that with books i don't like to read them all at once i like to savor them and so 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 i've got a little bit to come back to but yeah uh and uh just uh to to whet people's appetites a bit i have already turned in my essay for volume two on season two so that's awesome. Yeah, and like I mean it was it was a treat and other than other than the movie, the 1966 movie, I haven't watched like episodes of the show in 15 years maybe. Like I oh, don't wow. I don't have like the DVD box set or anything or I, I never got them or anything like that. Like I remember wh- I went through like a phase when they were rebroadcast again and I was watching them for a little while and by then I had sort of grown into a more mature phase where I could appreciate them. But it was still kind of like it wasn't something that I lived or died with. Like I, I just I knew of the show and I appreciated it. But like this was my first time kind of watching it again with a more critical eye as a more informed adult, you know, certainly since we've been talking about Batman more regularly. And I just, I really enjoyed that two-parter and those episodes um, and, and looking at Gorshin's performance again as the Riddler and having a bit more awareness of the series and the production and the approach they took, especially in the first season. Uh, and, and being able to contrast it more with some Silver Age comic books and stories from like the 50s and 60s, uh, I loved it. And I, I, based on your essay now, of course, I was staring at Batman's belt the entire time, just going, 
those are yellow sponges on his belt. I was like, those are not pouches or or any kind of equipment. He's just got sponges. And then, like, anytime they showed, like, a close-up shot of some of the equipment in the Batmobile, it's like, they just spray-painted that red. That's just, like, a piece of metal. It's like, some guy in the crew spray-painted that before they filmed that part. You can see where the paint is rubbing off on the side. It's like, this is so cheaply done. Like, it's, it's still wonderful. Yeah, no, I, I, had a, I had a really enjoyable time. And, it, yeah, it definitely it makes me want to watch more, go back and watch more of those episodes, too. If nothing else... The thing, I, I can't, actually more distracting than the sponges were um, the Riddler's uh, henchmen. The mm. two guys, like I mean, the the, the girl Moth uh, was beautiful, and she comes back, doesn't she? She played. You, you said she played another part, right? Uh, she was on a Green Hornet episode. Oh, I know. I can't, I can't remember off the top of my head if she came back on Batman. Her costume pretty much comes back as Batgirl. It, it looks like Bat, Batgirl costume. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but Riddler's two henchmen cronies, the two guys. Oh my god, like, one of them looks like he's just, like, bored to death half the time. Like, he just, like, he doesn't emote <laughs> anything except for just kind of, like, smiling at Frank Gorshin. It's like, who are these people? Like, what what did they, what scene did they think they were in? Because it's, I, I don't, oh, it was so weird, but yeah, it was well, really I, fun. <laughs> oddly enough, the one henchman, if, <laughs> excuse me, if I remember right, the one henchman was, uh, the actor that played the guy that ran the, uh, was it the Peach Pit on, on 90210? It's so... Um, oh god, yeah. Yeah, and we just found out from Mashcast that uh network friend Daniel Budnick was uh, uh extra on 90210. So so there's some shared DNA between Batman Nightcast and <laughs> I mean it's all it's all this weird um uh, connection between Batman 66 and and Mashcast and 90210 and Nightcast and it's all it's all very strange, but yeah. Yeah, it's that's one thing Jim Beard, the editor of, of these books he challenged us all to come up with some hook. Mm-hmm. And while I was watching that episode, I'm like, and like I said, I had read that article on, uh, on I think it was on MeTV.com about the sponges. But it's like, oh man, this this episode's full of those sponges. And then I started noticing how roughly hewn the, you know, the wooden pieces of equipment in the Batmobile <laughs> were. They didn't even sand them down, you know. And it, yeah. and like I said, there it's like you know, on crappy. You know, UHF transmission back in the, you know, 60s, right, 70s, right, 80s, right. nobody noticed. But in crystal clear HD, it's – you can't miss it. And, you know, and, it, and, and not to stay on this too long, but, you know, on Star Trek, they would use like, okay, let's go to a store and, oh, look, these these uh, salt and pepper shakers look very futuristic. And they would sort suddenly become part of Dr. McCoy's medical kit, yeah. you know. But, <laughs> but they didn't look like salt and pepper shakes. But – Batman had household sponges that were used in the 60s, are used today. <laughs> so how'd they ever think they could get away with that? I don't know. But there you go. <laughs> I remember when like HDTVs were first becoming prominent and a lot of like network news anchors were against the, their usage because they're like, like we, it's like, we don't want people to see us that closely. <laughs> Like, right, right. It's like we're gonna have to change our entire makeup job and like everything like that because like yeah, they're gonna look like the anchors in uh, Batman '89 <laughs> after yeah. they quit wearing cosmetics. Yeah. Woo. <laughs> 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 <Ooh. laughs> <laughs> anyway, bringing it back to Batman. Yeah, we've got uh, as always, we've got two issues that we're gonna cover: uh, Detective Comics 473 and 474. We're gonna start off. 
appropriately in numerical order. Number 473 has a November 1977 cover date, but would have hit the streets on August 25th that year, so says Mike's Amazing World of Comics. The book costs 35 cents and sports a cover by Marshall Rogers and Terry Austin showing Batman and Robin tackling a group of thugs on what looks to be a foggy Pier 31, a scene right out of the issue. Spoilers. Uh, in the background, thrust up against the warehouse, is the looming shadow of the Penguin. What do you think of this cover? I really enjoy it, but why is Batman roughing up poor Len Wein? What did he ever do to him? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that's who this guy looks like, and he doesn't look like that inside, which is weird. Uh, I do like it, though, and oddly enough, Batman is, is doing the, the half Nelson thing like he did on the cover of Detective 27. He's just tilted differently, but he's he's got the guy underneath his arm. You know, He's picking up a crook. So it kind of reminded me of that, even though this isn't a overly important milestone issue or anything. But that's a nice callback to the Golden Age, too. I noticed that, too. Yeah, that was sort of what it reminded me of, is him swinging that direction, you know, lifting a crook off the ground and everything and, like, carrying him. Um, that's cool. I, I like Robin. I don't know what it is, if it's, like, the misshaping of the shadow in the background or, like, the fog effect or just, like... A lot of the lines in the in the upper half that are kind of just like blocked out and obscured by the uh, by the title and everything, I think the, the cover to me looks a little bit busier, a little bit messier than it should. I still like it. I'd like the design and what's going on, but something about it just seems I don't know imbalanced, a little off. I I, I don't know what it is. I don't love it. I like it. That's it. Yeah, it, it is. It is a little. It's a little less, um, I don't know, a little less iconic mm-hmm. than the others because it is a little, it is a little busy. And I think you're right. I think part of it's the logo, and it might be because Batman's cape swooping up, and then we've got the Batman cape from the logo, which we both really like this logo. But this logo might actually be kind of getting in the way. It might have been better if they dropped the the Batman silhouette on the cover of this one and just had the the text Batman's yeah. Detective Comics, yeah. Maybe if Batman and the guy that he's grabbing were lower in the picture or something like that, and they were just, I, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I see what you're saying. But yeah, I still i still like it. I, I do like that it's, you know, Batman swinging this guy. I mean, he's basically swinging sideways. He's mm-hmm. he's He's got so much, uh, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> I don't know, thrust in his swing that he's now like, you know, he's like totally parallel to this guy. So, you know, he's like perpendicular or whatever, yeah. So is Robin. I mean, <laughs> like, they, yeah, Robin they do, is too. They do not like, like, they were just like walking around and just jumped all of a sudden. Like, they, they looked like they were like, they were like on like a bat hang glider or something and flew off. Yeah. <laughs> they jumped from four blocks away or something. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> all right. The story, The Melee Penguin, is written by Steve Englehart, penciled by Marshall Rogers, inked by Terry Austin, lettered by Milt Snappen, colored by Jerry Serpe, although his name is removed from all of the reprints and edited by Julie Schwartz. It's a foggy night on Pier 31 of Gotham Harbor. Two of Boss Thorn's goons, named Bruno and Murdoch, toss a wooden barrel into the river, taking to the bottom the corpse of Professor Hugo Strange. They marvel at how Strange chose death over revealing the Batman's secret identity, assuming the late Doctor must have been terrified of the Batman, something Bruno can't understand. That's bound to change, though, when the Cape Crusader, less than 24 hours removed from Professor Strange's prison-like sanitarium, drops in on them from out of the foggy night, accompanied by the boy wonder himself. 
Robin takes down Bruno and Batman disarms Murdock, demanding to know what they just tossed into the river. But Murdock refuses to tell. He works for Rupert Thorne, the head of Gotham City Council, which has issued a cease and desist order to the Batman. Murdock actually taunts the Batman, believing he has nothing to fear from the cops as long as Thorne is in power, and wondering if the Batman can say the same. As wailing sirens announce the approaching police cars, Batman and Robin take flight. Near a bridge further up the river, Batman explains to his ward how Thorn has been able to amass his power. Robin says he hadn't planned on staying back in Gotham for long, but now that Batman's a fugitive, he'll be sticking around to see his friend through this. He also asks how Batman is doing physically and mentally, and Batman admits that being held captive by Strange was surprisingly therapeutic. Even the radiation burns have healed. Elsewhere that night, in the same abandoned theater where Professor Strange had attempted to auction off the secret identity of the Dark Knight, the Penguin paces on stage, waiting for Strange to show up. He wonders, aloud, who the other potential bidders were, and a sudden telltale laugh seems to confirm to Penguin that one of his rivals was the Joker, but the Clown Prince of Crime does not reveal himself, so the Penguin leaves the theater, figuring that Strange stood him up. Early the next morning, a newspaper headline reveals that Reed Galleries will display a legendary Malay penguin sculpture. Batman and Robin visit the gallery and confront Mr. Reed, telling him the exhibit will be a prime target for the penguin who escaped from jail. Reed tells the dynamic duo that he is not about to cancel the exhibition on the chance that someone with a bird obsession might try to rob it. And anyway, they have more than adequate security. Batman doesn't think the security is so great, so Reed tells the vigilantes to go kick rocks. Batman and Robin return to the penthouse of Bruce Wayne early that morning. As Bruce sheds his Batman costume and adopts a pair of pajamas, Alfred tells him that the company's lawyers believe most of the financial disasters that were caused by Hugo Strange in the past week can be reversed or nullified. Then Bruce goes to bed. He wakes up promptly at noon and does some billionaire playboy stuff until 5 p.m. when Dick comes over. Before going on patrol that night, Bruce wants to visit Silver St. Cloud at the hospital. She meets Dick, who apologizes for blowing her off on the phone the night before, when in fact Dick, as Robin, used her warning to free Batman. Bruce thanks Silver for saving his life, and they start to make out heavy in her bed. For his part, Dick steps outside into the hall to give them more privacy. That night, Batman and Robin stake out Reed Galleries when they spot the Penguin waddling out of the theater next to the gallery. The Cape Crusader dropped down on the Penguin, who defends himself by turning his umbrella into a buzzsaw. After Robin kicks him, Penguin turns the umbrella blades into propellers and flies away from the two heroes, leaving them to puzzle his last words as a clue, Never pitch rolls at a bank. At the Tobacconist's Club, where the city council meets, Dr. Bell tells Rupert Thorne that while he agreed to a plan to discredit the Batman, he never signed off on murder. Between this outburst and how weak Bell appeared during the Dr. Phosphorus fiasco, Thorne determines that Dr. Bell is a problem and orders his man Murdoch to take Bell out. At that moment, a strange apparition, a ghostly visage of Hugo Strange, taunts Rupert Thorne. Equally surprising to the boss is that he alone saw the image. None of his goons know why he suddenly flips out. Meanwhile, 
Batman and Robin continue their stakeout when they hear the gallery's alarm go off. They rush in, expecting to find the Penguin, but Mr. Reed tells them the alarms were tripped by a very loud show rehearsing in the theater next door. Batman and Robin check out the theater, which is full of beautiful female dancers. The director tells Batman he doesn't know who financed the production. The following evening, Bruce and Dick are at the penthouse. Dick is on the balcony thinking about the clue, don't pitch rolls at the bank, when a flock of birds flying in the shape of a penguin pass by overhead. In unison, the birds drop leaflets all over the city. Attached are $20 gold pieces and a note addressed to the Batman that says, We need stall no longer. Time is on the wing. Tonight I shall lift the silver bird, and you will take a dive. Dick figures this is the Penguin announcing his plan to steal the Malay Penguin, using the dancers in the theater next to the gallery as a distraction. But Bruce doesn't think so. That night, the Batmobile races across the tarmac of Gotham International Airport. As a plane is about to taxi from the gate, Batman and Robin race up the stair and into the cabin, down the aisle, and right to the cockpit. A flight attendant thinks Batman is planning to hijack the plane, but Batman comes out of the cockpit with the real hijacker, the Penguin. Batman tells Robin that he deduced the Penguin's actual plot was to steal a plane based on the flight-based words in his clues. Pitch, roll, bank, stall, wing, lift, and dive. The Penguin confesses that he already stole the Malay Penguin two weeks ago before it even traveled to America, and the one in the Reed Gallery is a fake. As the dynamic duo take the Penguin back to jail, Robin marvels at how brilliant a detective his partner is. All right, Chris, what did you think of the story? Well, I I mean... This is a classic Penguin tale, and, and in fact, I think it actually may be the classic modern Penguin tale. I mean, uh, <laughs> it's uh, you know, you, you know, the Penguin unfortunately doesn't have as many stories that stand out, uh, you know, like the Joker, or Catwoman, or Two Face. I mean, so you know, and 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 O'Neill and Adams never did a Penguin story together. So I mean. I think this is it. I mean, it made it into the greatest Batman stories ever told, Volume Two, which came out in 1992 and was curiously full of Penguin and Catwoman stories. I, I don't know why. I never have understood. Interesting, interesting. <laughs> interesting. <laughs> but no, I, this is a, and it's a great detective story, too, to show that, you know, Batman is indeed the world's greatest detective. And also School Robin, who's doing pretty well. I mean, they've set, and especially Englehart and, and Rogers have set up Robin as, as as being a very effective crime fighter here, but they they prove with this one that he's not he's not quite up to master class just yet. Right, right. Yeah, that was my first takeaway when I got done with this. I was like, huh, this was an actual mystery tale. This was an actual detective story, and I like that um, to the point where very very sparse on the action. I mean, I think there's maybe like nine panels of action spread across two pages, and really that's it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, there's just you know they get they and 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 I kind of think where Batman and Robin jump down and confront the Penguin was there just to give it a little more action just so they could fight him for just a right. just a moment, you know, just basically so they can get their bat fight in, you know. <laughs> you were right. talking about the T V show earlier, they get their bat fight in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they need some sort of they need to do something. So yeah, Robin sort of kicks him, but then other you could take that confrontation away and the only thing you're missing is the first clue that he drops, but eh. Right, right. Yeah, they could have sent it to Gordon or something, yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, right away on page one, uh, there's two things that you noticed. 
uh, or two things that I noticed, and I'll see if you notice them. Um, okay. Number one, and I, in my notes, I just have tape with a lot of exclamation points. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, almost McFarlane-like cape. I mean, really, honestly, it's because you got two figures of Batman, uh, and I, I think at this page you realize that Englehart is – he said in the, the 13th Dimension interviews he worked full script, and you get the impression he did because basically – Rogers is like, okay, I'll make a little Batman figure for his caption up here. This, you know, this is an almost legendary figure, you know, and and then I'll put in a little vignette of the penguin of Cobblepot and also draw the Malay penguin (laughs) down here, too. So it's like, you know, you can kind of tell because there's there's a lot going on on this splash page. I mean, basically, it's 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 basically framed, but it's not but there's not an actual frame. I mean, you still get the background of the fog coming into the image the small image of batman with his cape pulled around him and then you get the actual in the moment shot of batman and robin in the air as they're swinging and yeah batman's cape is full-on bat wings there so yeah there's a lot of capage on this page (laughs) yeah i mean honestly that doesn't look like a cape in the in the panel of him and robin swinging down those look like pterodactyl wings yeah like like the spread of that that's like a 30-foot wingspan that's ridiculous like, yeah, like, and and yet, I don't really have a problem with it. Like, no, I don't either. Is, no. is it natural? Is it realistic? Of course not. But it's it's kind of fitting with the Rogers style and the atmosphere, and it just kind of it, it works for what this is. It's silly, but it's it doesn't bother me at all. No, no, and I mean, you know, Bernie Wrightson went nuts on the cape and the mm. Swamp Thing issues. Yeah. It, you know, a few years before, so yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, did you notice something missing from this page? And actually, I'll, I'll ask you because maybe it's not missing on the original copy, but it's missing on the reprints. Well, yeah, the the colorist um, credit is that what you're talking about? That's one thing that Jerry Serpy's name, the colorist credit, has been removed from the reprints. But there's something else. So I'll 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 ask you: Does your does the original copy have the Batman title and like blurb description? Uh, on this issue, it does not. It's just got uh, an almost legendary figure. You know that that mm-hmm. that yep, caption exactly. box. Yeah, and that's it. No, it doesn't. It doesn't have that that bat shaped silhouette with the the other legend of Batman in there. <laughs> right. right. So, yeah. or, orphaned as a child when a gunman murdered his parents, Bruce Wayne trained himself to wage relentless war against crime. Masquerading by day as a millionaire man about town, he prowls the night to prey on the vermin of the underworld as the dread Batman with the full logo and everything like that. That's on right. every other issue you know, of Batman Detective Comics, but it's missing from this page. Yeah, it's not here. And I mean, honestly, I don't think you need... It and an almost legendary figure, and we'll get to that in the next issue because we get both, and it's like, okay, guys, it's a little bit of an overkill, you know? <laughs> that, so, yeah, that was the point. Yeah, yeah. It's like, yeah, let's just stick with this, uh, you know, almost legendary figure because that's straight from the golden age. So let's just keep with that. <laughs> mm-hmm. But yeah, and it's odd, oddly enough, you know, Jerry Serpy doesn't get uh, a he gets a credit in the original, but Julius Schwartz doesn't get a credit as editor <laughs> in the original. But now in the reprint in the in the Greatest Batman Stories Ever Told Volume Two, which I do have right here, he um, Julie gets a credit and Serpe doesn't. So yeah, yeah. weird. Page two, uh, I don't. I'm not happy with the way Rogers laid this out. I think the the second panel, the one in the upper right, that's just kind of like an establishing shot of the the dock, the the harbor, and everything like that. Um, at least the reprint, as I'm looking at it, it's it's 
it's way too like foggy and thin where you don't really get the details. It's I mean you you know what you're looking at, but it doesn't give me any new information. It's like I already got the location from before, so I don't need that shot. And the line of dialogue could have been on the panel before it. So if I was editing, I think what I would have asked Rogers to do is basically take out that that panel in the upper right one, slide everything up by like a fifth of the page or a sixth of the page or whatever, because the other panel, the the one that's just them coming down, you've got a lot of empty space at the top. And then the bottom panel with Batman, like, squeezing Murdoch's wrist so he drops the gun, I would have just blown that panel up a little bit so you could actually see Murdoch and see more of what's going on in that panel. So I kind of yeah. just, like, cut off the top fifth of the page and slide everything up and then, like, expand that bottom panel. Yeah, yeah, I I agree. Yeah, it it does look that panel of just the dock, the top right panel. It looks a lot better than in the original. A lot of the fog line work is dropped out uh, in the reprints and in the this version. The colors are pretty similar. I mean, the colors are almost exactly the same mm-hmm. in the uh, reprint, the Greatest Batman Stories Volume Two. But it's they're more garish. They're just mm-hmm. it's the coloring process and. It's just, you know, like with a lot of comics, it's just like when you reprint something, ink lines drop out, and these fine, uh, I don't I don't even know what this effect is that Rogers is using on the fog in some of these places. I don't know. It almost looks like it's just pencils and not inked or something. Yeah, that's... It, it, yeah, I'm, I, I'm I Rob mean, would probably know. The, uh, the Marshall yeah. Rogers hardcover, which is what I'm looking at, that panel in itself, other than the, the coloring of the water down below, the rest of the page almost looks like a woodcut. Hmm. Yeah, it it does kind of look that way in the original too. Yeah. So, but it's just a lot more detail. This this the the colors in the this greatest volume two is just like blah. They're so bright. <laughs> I know. I know. I'm not. I, I'm not crazy about how this one was reprinted and colored. Yeah. Um, Batman loses in the beginning of this story. Like this whole like opening little chapter and everything with them confronting the bad guys. I mean, this goon, this street thug, is able to kind of laugh in his face. And say I'm not afraid of you because I'm not a, because you can't do anything to me. The cops are going to let me go because Thorne's got got my back and he's running the cops and everything. It's like you're the one who should be afraid. Like this is not Batman in his element, and I, I think he's he's got reason to be really ticked off, which is why he just punches the guy. You get the whole plop or whatever plock, whatever sound effect on page yeah. three. Um, this was interesting to kind of see. You know, like this is a Batman who's really off his game. Up to and including when they go to see um, Reed later on at the at the art gallery, that guy isn't taking them seriously either. I was like, "This is not a good day for Batman." <laughs> yeah, he's definitely the discredit. The, you know, Thorn discrediting him is is actually working. Yeah, and obviously, what Batman needs to do is like put the, some guy's head under the tire of the Batmobile and threaten to oh. move forward. <laughs> no 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 no. i do like that batman when he punches the guy he punches him with you know both fists and he punches him through the the o and plow it looks like it's like it's it it reminds me there was an old justice league cover that came out in the height of batmania where uh batman and like i think it's uh wildcat and the sandman it's a jla jsa crossover in their like Solomon Grundy and and uh, the blockbuster are like punching them through like the the openings in the in the onomatopoeia letters from like the TV show. And they're like they're they're like literally going through them, and that's what it makes me. It reminds me of a little bit here. Nice, nice. <laughs> yeah, but I, I do like that they're continuing to show that Robin's a badass. Mm. You know, 
uh, he just comes in and the guy's got like, he's got Robin with him too and he's like and Robin like you know this like pimp slaps the guy and he's like but but he I just mentioned his name you know so yeah it's that they're they're definitely doubling down on you know Robin's competency and especially in battles which which I like. Mm-hmm. Why is the penguin speaking out loud at all? <laughs> I mean I I I know why he is because we need something to set up the Joker laughing but. It's like that was one of those things where it's like the only reason he's talking out loud is so that we have an excuse to reveal some some information later. But it's like, uh, I don't know. I, I, I that part bothered me. Yeah, I I don't know. I guess the penguin that just you know like a lot of Batman villains is so vain that he just he you know if there's nobody to listen to him talk he you know talks to himself out loud and. I don't know. I guess I could kind of see Burgess Meredith doing this, so I guess it doesn't bother me as bad because I'm Burgess Meredith is my go-to penguin. Like yeah. even as other other versions of the characters have kind of sub, especially the animated versions have kind of supplanted the the '66 actor portrayals in my head. And when I read comics, I still I still go back to Burgess Meredith for the Penguin for the most part. Although I like Paul Williams on the animated series, but yeah, I, yeah, I don't know. That is kind of strange. But yeah. I, just, I, just, I mean, just I just thought like even if even if one of his thugs, like you know, he he goes outside and he's got his goons waiting for him. If one of them was in the room with him, just kind of like you know his bodyguard or something like that, or just like an enforcer. So if the Penguin had an audience, that would be. That would be fine, but yeah, I miss the the guys in the black turtlenecks with the derby hats and the <laughs> and, and the the domino masks. That's who, that's what he needs, and they got their name written on the you know foul or something written on their shirt. You know, that's the <laughs> that's the kind of henchman we need with the finger. <laughs> mm-hmm. I want to. I'll do what it, just backpedal just a, just a bit on on page four when Batman and Robin are discussing. You know, Batman being essentially outlawed, and Robin says, "I'm going to stick around and help you," which. Spoiler warning, folks, he doesn't. Uh, <laughs> but panel three has always bothered me. Why did Marshall Rogers draw them upside down in that panel? I took that as it's their reflection in the water. Okay. They're, still on the, they're still on the riverfront. Um, okay. They're, they're by that bridge, which looks much more like a European like bridge. That looks like they're on a bridge or something that you would find in London or Paris, like not in an American city or something like that. Maybe. I, I could be wrong, but... Yeah, uh, but yeah, that's I, I took that on panel three is that's their reflection in in the river. Okay, I I can get that, and I it I, and honestly, I feel stupid for never having thought that. But the fact that the lines around them and stuff looks just like the fog we see in the panel up above. So yeah, yeah. It, it, it I didn't know if that was him trying to just say you know how distorting this disorienting the fog can be, but. Yeah, it does make sense, but I think we needed, you know, we've got a lot of word balloons in that small panel, but mm-hmm. it, you know, maybe I think a shot of, you know, their feet, you know, on the, the edge of the bridge or, right. you know, their capes billowing out, you know, would have established that you're looking past them to their reflection or something. Because, yeah, I've ever since I first read this, when I first, I think when I first bought the, well, I, don't think, I don't know if I got the greatest, uh, well, no, I think I got this single issue before I got this in 92 i've always wondered why are they upside down but thanks that kind of answers that for me so thank you <laughs> um back with uh, the mystery to the galleries batman uh mentions uh, he, he drops this line about uh the shadow thief uh and there's the it's a reference to justice league of america issue 139 i was pretty sure but i had to look that up that was steve englehart's first justice league story 
Ah, there you go. Like he he had a brief little run on Justice League of America at, around the same time as this Batman run, and the first one he wrote, I, I guess JLA 139 had two stories in it, and Inglehart wrote one of them. Um, so yeah, he was just he was referencing his own stuff, but. Now, um, cool. Yeah, it's Justice League stories where he establishes the Manhunters. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so, <laughs> so he could come back to that in Millennium, which was the payoff we were all waiting for. That's right. That's right. <laughs> I, I do love it when when Mr. You know, Mr. Reed, like he's like, <laughs> I have lasers, I have seismographs, and Batman's like, Do you have cameras? Cameras. <laughs> I love the weathering of <laughs> the way that. he says it. It's just like he's like that that guy that I can't think it, I can't think of the actor's name, but he he was on like Lucille Ball's like second show, and he did that bit like on radio and in movies. He was always the fussy guy in the store or something mm-hmm. at mm-hmm. in some department store, and he was always like, "Oh my, you know that <laughs> yeah. guy." I can't. Mean, that's just cameras. <laughs> <you know? laughs> I just like laughed out loud when I saw the and the look that Rogers gives him on his face. He's just like, "How dare you!" You know, it's almost like Mister Howl. You know, the yeah. cameras, lovey. This Yale man wants me to get cameras. You know, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. Um, page eight. Actually, my favorite panel in this entire issue is on page eight, and it's panel three. Um, Bruce and Dick have come back to the penthouse and everything, and Alfred is telling them what's going on. They've taken off their capes and and the cowl and masks and everything. And panel three, you've got three word balloons, and it's all Alfred giving some, like, exposition about what's going on after Hugo Strange taking over the company and everything like that, and and what the board is going to be doing and how, you know, they're going to manage to save the Wade and Fortune from all of this damage. All of the exposition, all of the dialogue is sort of plot-centric information. All of the art in this page, though, what Rogers is doing, is giving you character information that has nothing to do with Alfred or what's going on. We see it's uh, Dick is kind of in the foreground, but with his back to us, and he's waving to Bruce, and Bruce is waving to back to him. And Dick is just doing like this kind of two-finger salute wave. They're basically saying, hey, good work, Good night. I'll see you in a couple of hours. This is them just, you know, kind of like they they they've done this. They're comfortable with each other. They don't need to say anything. Alfred is giving him spiel. Bruce is paying attention to Alfred, and this is just Robin saying, "Hey, man, I'll talk to you in a little, I'll talk to you in a couple hours. Have a good night, sleep, something." And it's just doing it with the wave, this little two finger salute. I love the way Rogers captured that. You get all the information about these two guys and their history without any of the dialogue, because the dialogue is just giving you other information. It's such a great panel right there. Yeah, I had this, this uh, you know, singled out, too. Yeah, I love it. The body language. I mean, you know, and that's, I mean, that's like, you know, I mean, when my son Andrew's, like, going to work or something, you know, he's walking out, and he'll just look at me, and, you know, a lot of times he'll just say, I'm out, or something, or, mm-hmm. but, you know, we'll, like, give each other a little, like, you know, salute as we go out, you know, and, and that says... Hey, bud, love you. Have a good day. Mm-hmm. You know, see you later yeah. without saying it, you know. And, right, and, and, and the lack of words, the fact that they don't have to say anything, just like with right. you, you and your son, he's old enough now where you are looking at each other as almost kind of peers and adults. You have that maturity level. He, right. Robin is not a little kid anymore, just like Andrew's not a little kid. You know, you don't right. need to hug and say goodnight or, you know, sleep well, I'll, I'll see you in a couple hours and everything. This is... 
these guys have had enough shared experiences that it doesn't take that. It just takes a little wave in the head nod and we're going, you know, we're doing our thing. Yep. I love it. Yep. You're right. It's, it's, it really is. It really is fantastic. And I wonder if it was even in the script, you know, if that was just something that, that Rogers threw in. Yeah. I, I don't know. I would be interested in that, but um, yeah, if not, it's just a great little interpretation because it's so much better than what you're just getting. I mean, cause it, it could have just been a shot, a close up of Alfred and three word balloons talking of him, you know, and then we get shirtless Dick Grayson for those who are into that. And I know a lot of people are into a that. A lot of so people are into that. There is certainly shirtless Dick Grayson. There yeah, is yawning. an audience for that, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then, um, for those of us with other proclivities, Silver. <laughs> on stage. Yowza. We get Silver with her, her, you know, her robe, her hospital robes, which her first shot, her arms are stretched out wide, so the sleeves are coming down, we're giving her bare arms, and boy, is that loose fitting over her chest. Yes, I, I don't think anybody has ever looked this glamorous in a hospital bed. <laughs> <laughs> but Silver pulls it off, yeah. <laughs> and I, I think... I mean, the only thing you need is just when when Dick leaves the room, leaves them, you know, Bruce and Silver in bed together, and he just closes the door, and he goes, ooh-wee. <laughs> ooh-wee. Yeah. Yeah. I like that Dick's basically like, you know, he's apologizing to her. He can't come out and say, sorry, I sound like an ass. I'm really Robin, and I yeah. saved everyone, <laughs> including you, you know, but no, he can't. He can't really say that, you know, so it's... <laughs> yep. uh, I think it, you know, it's it's interesting that you know Engelhardt has said in interviews and in, in on Thirteenth Dimension and that series is going on right now, but that it was important for him to give Batman an actual adult romance and a sex life, and he's certainly selling that here. I mean, we got that you know like oh I'm just so exhausted from the other night you know phone call <laughs> with you know uh, Silver in her negligee or underwear right. whatever she was in the, a few issues ago, and now. Now we got this and Dick's ooh wee, you know, so <laughs> it's steamy, you know, and I love the look on this place. Like it's that look with uh with Bucky and Falcon when Cap kisses uh Sharon Carter in Civil War and they both give that nod. <laughs> yes, that, yes. And I love that scene. I love it. It's just that bro that like, oh yeah, bro, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and you definitely get the feeling, I mean, this this isn't, you know, Dick walking away, you know, leaving them to their privacy. He's closing the door and standing there with his arms closed. He's got a job to do, which is to make sure the nurses don't interrupt for the next ten minutes. He's the tie on the door. Yeah, is exactly. what he is. <laughs> <laughs> oh, if this, uh, this semi-private room's are, uh, rocking, don't come knocking, you know. <laughs> it's a good thing he's not ten years old anymore. <laughs> Ooh, yeah. Ooh. Uh, the next page, we get a very dynamic shot of Batman and Robin on the rooftop looking down. And I like what Rogers is doing with the cape flourish in the shot. I don't like the fact that from this angle, he's covering up one of Batman's eyes. I just think like, I, I, I'm assuming that it is, you know, just it's partly stylized and it's partly just based on the angle, kind of like looking up. But it just seems like Batman wouldn't, take away, you know, one of his senses for the sake of looking dramatic. So I just, I don't know. I, I, something about, I just, I wish we could see both of his eyes from that shot. Yeah, I, I agree. I, otherwise, I think it's like, it's a near iconic shot and it does seem to be, uh, you know, a, a kind of uh, Roger's take on that classic 
Carmine Infantino, yes. Murphy Anderson rooftop right. shot, which is of course is one of my favorite images yeah, of all time. So, one, yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah, it's it's definitely cool. The only thing about this sequence. Jerry Serpe kind of lets us down. It looks like it's daytime outside because he chooses to color the sky light blue. Uh, light blue. And I think, you know, if it had been red or even pur- or purple or something like that, it would have conveyed night. It looks like they're shooting shooting day for night. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, you know, so it it, it almost looks like, and, 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 you know, that makes the moon look like the sun. And, it you know, it just did. Yeah, it kind of looks like Batman and Robin are, you know, uh, confronting the Penguin in broad daylight, which is something, you know, 70s Batman rarely did unless he was in a Bob Haney comic, you know. Yeah, I mean, like right behind Batman, it almost looks like there are rays of light coming off of the moon. So that definitely gives it a sun effect. It's like, what the heck? But Yeah, yeah. I was aware that this whole, like, Roger's run was collected in a trade called Strange Apparition. And I could never remember what that name signified until I got to this part of the story. I was like, oh, yeah, the ghost thing. <laughs> I was like, I, this is like yeah. the, the one element of this whole story arc that I can never remember. <laughs> like, it's it always kind of fades out of my memory. So I'm always like, why was that called Strange Apparition when they collected it in a trade paperback? Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, yeah, that, that, you know, that's the thing that, you know, Englehart didn't give this a title. So, you know, it was Strange Apparition. Now it's like called Dark Detective a lot because yeah. of the, the sequel series they ended up doing. But, uh, yeah, it, yeah, the ghost of, of Hugo Strange angle. But I, again, I just backpedal just a second. Did you think that when the penguin flew off with his umbrella, it made me think because Englehart has said, you know, he wrote a treatment for the 89 Batman movie. Um, you know, that treatment was, you know, kind of the foundation of the movie we got, even though names were changed, Silver was changed to Vicky Vale, things like that. Mm-hmm. And then he has said, you know, he has, um, he, without any credit or compensation, he's been, uh, they've pilfered elements from these stories in the movies. And I kind of went, the way Penguin flies off with this, you know, whirly helicopter bit out of his umbrella it sure seems like that scene in Batman Returns when, you know, the Catwoman first comes out, meows, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Then, then flies off. And, I mean, you know, we take for granted that the Penguin flies with his umbrella, but honestly, I'm not sure he had done the helicopter trick a whole lot before this. He'd used it as a parachute <laughs> and to glide on, but I don't know if he'd, like, like literally taken off from a standing position with it before. So the movie movies may have cribbed another they might have had this you know these issues sitting out and like ooh that's a good bit you know and uh, you know which always bothered me because you know here batman grabs for him in the movie michael keaton just stands there and let it, lets him fly off which <laughs> you know always just bothered me it's, it's like, like oh come on you know <laughs> a couple of years ago you saw the joker escape on a helicopter and you stopped him then he couldn't like throw a rope around penguin's leg and pull him back down Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> like, you know, he's not hanging on to like a two-ton helicopter. It's just him and some right. piece of metal. It's like you could pull the penguin back down to gravity. <laughs> right. Right. Oh, before real quick, just in the original copy of the book, there's a two-page, double-page uh, ad for CBS Saturday Morning in 1977, and there is a. Uh, it's for the Batman. There's a blurb in there for the Batman Tarzan Adventure Hour. And it's the whole ad is either drawn by Neil Adams or his continuity studios. And so you get a Neil Adams, Batman and Robin and Batmite, because that's the 
the version of the filmation show that had Batmite. Mm-hmm. And and so it, it, it's it's Neil Adams drawing in a pseudo Carmine Infantino style because that's what the the model sheets were yeah. based on <laughs> within a Marshall Rogers Batman comic. So it's all confluence of great Batman artists there for a split second. So it's I just thought I just had to point that out. So <laughs> I've never seen an episode from that series. Oh really? Yeah. I've never I've never seen that that era of the filmation Batmans. I, I I've known about it but I just I've never watched one. You've watched uh I, I assume you watched He Man and the Masters of the Universe. Yeah oh, yeah yeah yeah. Well take Orko, put him in a weird Batmite costume and shove him in a Batman story and there you go. <laughs> I mean that's pre- and I'm pretty sure it's the same voice. I think it might even be Lou Scheimer, the producer of the head of filmation himself that provided the voice of both. Oh, and wow. it's just yeah, I mean it's it might be slightly different. It's been a while since I watched them, but I if I remember right, they're very similar and and yeah, it's I, I watched it as a kid and enjoy, enjoyed it, but there's some good, great episodes out there, but yeah, Batmite's constant presence, and he's not the, he's not the fun, cheeky Batmite that that Paul Rubens played on the Brave and the Bold, where he's making all these references. He's more the annoying, you know, seventies, eighties cartoon add-on, cute mm-hmm. character. So, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, it's yeah. <laughs> uh, jumping forward on page fourteen, this is when Batman and Robin are investigating the uh, the stage show in the theater next to the uh, the gallery. Uh, we've got all of these dancers up there. Actually, the, right before that, there's a uh, page thirteen. There's this joke about, um, you know, the, the, how much sound they make. It the show must be like full of elephants or something like that. And Batman and Robin run in, and Robin goes, "Let's see these elephants." He's like, oh, wow, Dumbo was never like this, as he's looking at all the, the showgirls up on the stage. And then on 14, there's a shot of panel three where uh, one of the ladies is walking past them, and Aaron Robin's just turning around to look. Yeah, Robin's saying, it's like, uh, I hate to see you leave, but I sure like to watch you walk away. You know, that's basically yeah. what he's saying. <laughs> it's, it's essentially that meme, except we're cutting off. Uh, like we're cutting off Starfire to his right, go, giving him the look like, what the hell, dude? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, it, yeah, I, I caught that too. And you know, Rogers, Rogers never fails to give us an attractive woman when he's he's drawing them. I mean, he's just, uh, yeah, they're uh, the, the stars on their outfits are in interesting places too. I'll just put mm-hmm. that put it that way. Yeah, yeah. so. <laughs> And then the penguin does this airdrop with all of these little like clues with all like like how much money did he spend dropping these <laughs> these twenty dollar gold pieces and everything just to give uh, Batman, Batman like the wrong clue. This was something that I wanted to bring up, and I guess I just I don't remember reading like in Golden and Silver Age Penguin stories like. Did he leave a lot of clues? Did that seem like a compulsion for him, like that he had to kind of do tip his crimes this way? Was that just something that it was understood that every Batman villain did? Yeah, I, I think at some point, yeah, it just it became like it became the the formula of a Batman story that it was it was whether the Penguin or the Joker or the Riddler or Catwoman, they all you know they all left some kind of clue. They all tipped their hand. They. They were all interested in the game, you yeah, know. They had and to announce themselves and challenge the battle. Yeah. And with Penguin, his his air of superiority, you know, it makes sense that he, you know, he feels like Batman, kind of like Hugo Strange in a way. He feels like Batman's a worthy rival, but mm-hmm. with Penguin, he's out to prove that no, well, you're not as you're not so worthy. I'm smarter than you. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you lots of chances to to figure this out, but I don't think you're going to because obviously I'm smarter than you. Which I mean. 
you know, you know, you can question why, you know, why these guys, you know, why do they go through all this? Why, you know, I mean, the Riddler's got like a psychological block that he cannot stop himself. But with the Penguin, you know, he seems like a craftier guy. And I guess, you know, they've addressed that. It's like when the Penguins tried to go straight and, uh, you know, multi, I mean, that's the that's the go to Penguin thing. He got, tries to go straight, legit, you know, one way or the other. Uh, so but yeah, it, it was a little it's a little more riddler-esque i guess in a way but i think they all got to that and you know by the time of the tv show they were all taunting batman one way or the other sending stuff to police headquarters and you know this is like a huge production like you said though i mean you know he he could have just like sent this to gordon's to police hq and they could have stopped by there but no he's got to train all these birds to not only form the silhouette of the penguin uh (laughs) as they fly through the sky which I love how they shade in the middle of it so you can make out his top hat and things mm. like that. Uh, but yeah, you know, but but also drop all these gold coins and these twenty. Like you said, it's like you know the money that he's going to get from you know hijacking this plane full of all these you know investment you know these rich investment types that are going to Europe. It, you know, is you know again, it's like Lex Luthor building a you know, $70 billion robot to rob a bank of a hundred thousand dollars. You know, it's, it's like, okay. Uh, I do have to, I have to point out though. I mean, this was the seventies. It's the seventies. Okay. We, we know it's 1977, but my God, Bruce Wayne's pants. I love his outfit. I, I mean, our buddy, Brian Hyler over at Plaid Stallions would look at this and go, God, you know, just like, I think because, he has got these checkered brown and orange pants on that, I mean, uh, Herb on WKRP in Cincinnati would look at that and go, oh, no, man, I can't I can't even do that. You know, it I mean, is, it's it is awesome. It is like this caramel colored suit with checkered pants. He's also wearing a yellow checkered tie uh, shirt with a, like a, a mustard colored tie. Oh, boy. Yeah. Yeah, I, I tell you what, this does make me realize, though, I meant to bring this up. I brought it up, I think, on a previous episode that there was a guy on Dark Shadows I thought would pl- make a good Joker. I, I, I put to, If you guys know who the actor David Selby is, David Selby was on Dark Shadows. He played the role of Quentin, who at one time was a ghost, was a uh-huh. werewolf. He was he was the villain on Falcon Crest. He was sort of their JR uh-huh. for, like, all the seasons of Falcon Crest. And he would i've come to the conclusion that david selby would have made a great 70s batman oh yeah because he because he's got he's got this intensity he's played this he's played a brooding millionaire with a dark side you know on on dark shadows so so i i I think he'd be and and he like toward the end of the series when they were in the present he wore outfits that looked a lot like this and that's what made me think of it i'm like yeah i could totally see david selby as a 70s bruce wayne batman so uh, that's my fan casting there, so there you go. <laughs> I remember I said this years ago about an episode of Supermates when you and Cindy were talking. I just remember leaving a comment. I think it would have been awesome if Jonathan Freed had appeared in Batman as like the Scarecrow or somebody like that. Mm, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I thought. Yeah. He'd be great. He he'd been great as as a as a as a Bat villain. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. He's got. Uh, uh, yeah, he's definitely got the dramatic chops to pull it off. He's just got that look too. He's got that almost Karloff look to his yeah, face yeah, exactly. that just, yeah. just screams that type of character. Yeah, I, I I do like that when Bruce you know tells Dick 
wrong. You know, it's like <laughs> it's, if, Kevin, if Kevin Spacey wasn't such a horrible human being, you know, you could drop that Lex Luthor wrong from Superman Returns in right here. You know, it's, <laughs> it's it's okay. Thank God it's not Batman slapping <laughs> slapping Robin and everything like that. We're done with that one. But yeah, we just get these three panels over. Dick laying out this whole plot the way he thinks he solved the case and everything to, for and like with the second panel he's like right and then the third panel is just Bruce wrong like <laughs> and Dick, like jaw dropped like dude <laughs> and Dick looks just destroyed he's like ah <laughs> it's like yeah he's, it's great he's your friend he's here to help you out maybe you could like you know approach that differently. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the one bat dickery move in this story. <laughs> right, right. So yeah, and again, like a, f- a fairly you know not an action packed. And I mean, the the action is they drive the car fast and they run upstairs fast, and then he's just got the penguin and he explains what was going on with the the clues and everything. So, and then yeah, yeah the penguin was like, I didn't have to steal the thing; I already stole it. The one that's under guard is a fake. So. It's. It was cool because it was. They, there was an actual mystery element and some detective work. That Batman had to actually piece together these clues, um, but ultimately, like that revelation that the the penguin had already stolen the work of art. So Batman and Robin were staking out the thing for no reason the whole time. Kind of made me feel like the stakes of the story weren't that important. And there were some, there were a few little artistic choices by Rogers that I didn't really like in the beginning. And but ultimately, so <clears throat> I don't think it's a great issue. It is a cool little entry for the Penguin's lore. Um, but I think this story is a better kind of transitional chapter of saying, okay, what has been going on? Like the last two chapters with Hugo Strange were really heavy and left some long-term effects that need to be dealt with. So this is Englehart actually building on continuity and playing up the consequences of what happened before, furthering Bruce's relationship with Silver, you know, widening this, you know, conspiracy of what Thorne is doing like that. So I kind of felt like the Batman and Robin aspects of this, there were some cool character-building events in this this, uh, issue, but I kind of felt like their story was the least interesting part of it. Uh, I felt like it, I was more intrigued by what was going on with Silver, with Boss Thorn, uh, and a little bit with uh, the Penguin's plot here. Yeah, yeah, I, I think I think you know Englehart just he wanted to do uh, Joker and Penguin, and he felt like those were the two big villains. So mm-hmm. he you know came up with a Penguin story that fit within the greater narrative he was he was putting together. But I really like this though as a as a you know it's kind of they they kind of you know after they show robin you know saving the day and, and saving batman's bacon in the previous issue they show at the end that he's he's not quite like i said he's not he's not quite ready uh to 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 take over as batman you know yeah. basically uh you know he's he's got he's still got a way to learn he's still, still got a way to go some things to learn uh you know to look beyond the the you know even to look beyond the obvious, you know, even after, you know, to, to second guess himself and and to 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 look at things from a different angle. I like that. So it's kind of a nice arc for for Robin in a lot of ways, especially after they they really puffed him up last time. They kind of brought him back down just a little bit. But, uh, yeah, I, I think, you know, compared to the other Batman comics that were coming out at the time, you know, I, I think this is definitely still, although it's not one of the, the standouts in this series, it still stands apart. 
from from what else you were getting, especially in in, in a DC in general at the time. So, mm-hmm. you know, but yeah, it's probably not. You know, it's one of the lesser issues in in some ways. But I mean, in a run this great, that's still that's still way above average. So. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right, folks, we're going to take a promo break right now, but we will be back in a minute with Detective Comics 474. Don't go away. Oh, hello there. Do you enjoy going to the movies, attending comic conventions and theme parks, or rocking out to your favorite band at a crowded concert? Lucky for you, in the midst of chaos, heroes emerge in the form of the Social Distance Warriors! So bunker down, relax, and get ready to dive into the world of music. Six feet apart, please. Movies and television. Six feet apart, please. Comics. Six feet apart, please. And all other forms of entertainment on the Social Distance Warrior podcast on the Rhino Network on SocialDistanceWarrior.com. Okay, we're back, and we're going to cover Detective Comics number 474, which was cover dated December 1977, and according to Mike's Amazing World, it was on sale September 27th, 1977. On this cover by Marshall Rogers and Terry Austin, we have an extreme close-up of the face of Deadshot against an orange-red background. Deadshot is aiming and firing his arm-mounted guns at the leaping Batman, who is reflected in Deadshot's silver mask, while his silhouette shows up in both of his sights on Deadshot's mask and on his gun. Besides the logo, the only text reads, Deadshot's Revenge. So what do you think of this cover, Ryan? I like it a lot. Um, I like that it doesn't reveal all of Deadshot's new costume. Some of that will be coming in, in the story itself. I think I wish the colorist would have done a better job to show that it's a reflective surface, maybe more more white than blue, I think might have might have helped. But besides that, yeah, I, I like it. Yeah, this is this has become a pretty iconic cover for this run, especially for Deadshot. So yeah, and in fact, his next cover appearance in Detective Number Five Eighteen in nineteen eighty two has pretty much the same layout, although Deadshot's slid over to the right of the cover, uh, and so you can see Batman swinging in from behind, and he's got Bruce Wayne's in his sights, which is like one of those "huh" moments uh, <laughs> that you have to read, and that's by Jim Aparo, but. I actually got that comic before I got this one. So when I got this one, it was like reverse deja vu. So, (laughs) (laughs) but yeah, I like this. I agree. Yeah. If they added like a little bit of, especially like right in the middle of his, of his cow, like right around the the figure of Batman, like in the background and more silvery white, it would have helped because he's pretty blue on this, on this cover. He's like a light, it's a light blue and you know, oh wow. Can you imagine if they, if they, if we were in the crazy variant covers of the nineties, they could have done a (laughs) a chromium edition to show batman reflecting you know actually that would actually been pretty cool i don't usually (laughs) like those but so dc if you're going to do a reprint of this give it a chromium cover variant there you go that that, that's a free one for you so uh inside the story is called the deadshot ricochet it's written by steve englehart he did the story marshall rogers pencil art terry austin ink art ben oda comes in as letterer this time jerry serpe the colorist and Julia Schwartz was the editor. After apprehending the Penguin, Batman and Robin return to the Batcave deep beneath the Wayne Foundation building. Robin comments on how he feels his time in college has dulled his crime-fighting senses. A jovial Batman decides to test the skills he taught the Teen Wonder, and the two engage in a fun wrestling match, with both getting a judo flip on the other. 
Their fun is interrupted by a Teen Titans alert from Wonder Girl, asking Robin to return to their headquarters for an important meeting. Robin reluctantly agrees to go at Batman's insistence that he can handle the quagmire he's currently embroiled in with Councilman Boss Rupert Thorne. Meanwhile, the Penguin is returned to his cell in Gotham Prison, where he is mocked by a cell neighbor, Floyd Lawton. Penguin points out that while he has managed to escape from prison many times, Lawton has rotted in his cell since Batman put him there years ago. Then the pudgy purveyor of perfidy brags about his latest escape scheme, a high-powered laser hidden in his monocle. Lawton grabs the monocle and steals the Penguin's escape for himself, cutting a hole in the cell wall and leaping outside, declaring that Deadshot is free once more. Across town, Rupert Thorne is startled to find he is not alone in his darkened office. The Batman emerges from the shadows and confronts Thorne, demanding he rescind the cease and desist order on him that Thorne has pushed through. The corrupt councilman refuses, citing that he is only doing what the people ask of him. But Batman knows better and warns Thorne that this was his last chance to end this peacefully. Batman leaves, but then Thorne is haunted by an even scarier visage, the ghost of Hugo Strange. The apparent apparition warns Thorne that the next time he sees him, he will be the end of him. Thorne tries to strike at the specter blindly, but when he opens his eyes, he is gone. Early the following morning, Bruce Wayne meets Silver St. Cloud downtown so she can show him around her work. Bruce tries the lazy playboy routine on her, but it backfires, and Bruce finds himself defending his own interest in the Wayne Foundation. He notes to himself that this is their first lover spat, a sign the two are becoming very serious, despite there being a part of Bruce Wayne that Silver can never know, a part that has become more important than the public mask of Bruce Wayne, namely the Batman. Silver takes Bruce to the nearby exhibition hall where she works as a convention coordinator. There they bump into a familiar face for Bruce, Commissioner Jim Gordon. Gordon informs them that they are searching for a criminal who once had a hideout in the area named Floyd Lawton, a.k.a. Deadshot. Gordon and Bruce trade notes on Lawton, with Gordon remembering he had once masqueraded as a hero and now had quite a grudge against Batman for his apprehension. Bruce recalls Lawton was an expert marksman, hence the name. It's this conversation that spurs another while Bruce and Silver take in lunch at one of Gotham's poshest restaurants. Silver grills Bruce on his once famous interest in crime and how he was once even known as a contact for Batman. A visibly nervous Bruce offers that he did know Batman, but that Alfred knew him better in the role of amateur detective and that his interest in crime waned with the increasing responsibilities of Wayne Enterprises and the Wayne Foundation. As Silver watches him silently and intently, Bruce realizes that he has to be very careful around the very resourceful Miss St. Cloud. At sunset, Batman observes the area of Deadshot's last known hideout from above. He recalls how Lawton was a millionaire playboy much like himself, who took up crime fighting to compete with Batman. Dressed in top hat, tails, and a domino mask, Deadshot nearly succeeded in replacing Batman as Gotham's number one masked hero. Batman suspected him of criminal intent, but all his allegations only came across as sour grapes. Lawton overplayed his hand when he tried to murder the Cape Crusader, who had already altered his gun sights, making him miss his target and shaking his confidence enough for Batman to defeat him. The Dark Knight notes he's in a similar situation now with Boss Thorne, but his reminiscences end when a bullet whizzes by his head. He dives for cover and looks up to see his assailant is Lawton, decked out in a new modern Deadshot costume, complete with arm-mounted, high-powered rifles and integrated scopes in his mask. Like all villains in Gotham, Lawton begins to monologue how every shot he fires is like a blast of hate directly from him, which gives Batman a chance to surprise him, if only briefly. The two trade blows with Batman knocking Deadshot off a building, but he manages to fire a rope line to save himself and swings away with Batman in pursuit. Neither seems to notice another party on a nearby rooftop or the familiar maddening laugh of the Joker. 
Batman follows Deadshot to another roof, one that just happens to be atop Silver's convention hall. The two crash through a skylight into the hall below. A security guard plans to call the police since Batman is now wanted, but Silver refuses, ordering him to stand down as she watches the battle play out. Lawton and the masked manhunter fight across a giant prop typewriter. Deadshot takes aim and seems to have found his target, but Batman's body flips up from under the typewriter's hood and he grabs Lawton's head with his feet, slamming his head into the type element ball. With his body trapped among the mechanisms inside, Deadshot surrenders, and the Batman prepares to leave him for the police. Before he goes, Silver calls out to him. The Cape Crusader turns, and the two share a glance. In that instant, Silver thinks to herself, It was Bruce. I know it. It was Bruce. So what do we think of this one, Ryan? Uh, it's a fun issue. Um, it's a fun return to Deadshot, a character who's been gone. Like, did anybody but Steve Englehart remember this character? Um, <laughs> I, I'm imagining it was his idea and not Julie Schwartz's. Do you remember the animated movie? The I think it was Gotham Knights. It was like an anthology with like six different Batman stories by like manga directors. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There was one of them. I think the last story in that was a Deadshot story, which put him again he was just wearing sort of like a suit and tie like top and tails thing except he had like this bright red suit with a big red fedora i always really really liked that outfit for him but yeah this is i mean this is the more iconic super villain costume uh that he will be associated with in you know going going forward in in the suicide comic book and then secret six and then even into the suicide movie yeah right yeah yeah i mean this is this is definitely uh uh, this is a big debut for a character that had, had been left in the wind. And actually, according to the Batman companion, uh, Englehart, uh, which we constantly refer to by uh, Michael Urey and uh, Michael Cronenberg, actually Julius Schwartz uh, suggested Deadshot because Englehart had originally planned to do seven issues and something opened up that he could do eight. <laughs> and so he created this this issue as uh, a chance to fill out some of the subplots and to revive another character. And Schwartz suggested, well, why don't you use Deadshot? Now, where Schwartz got Deadshot, I don't know, because Deadshot's only other appearance in Batman 59 was written by David V. Reed, who was currently writing the Batman title at this time. So I kind of wonder what he thought of this of his own character being revived and retooled like this, which... You know, David Reed Reed had left comics for a while, or Batman, and had come back in the mid seventies. Uh, but uh, yeah, so this this issue, it's you know almost didn't happen, and it's one of the more famous issues in the run, and actually ended up in the the original version of the greatest Batman stories ever told. So hmm. go figure. <laughs> Where would Will Smith be if this issue had? <laughs> exactly. Can you imagine his career if he never got to play Deadshot? <laughs> Um, that's, yeah, wow, that's fascinating, because actually, I mean, uh, again, like, going through, like, in this story, for me, the most interesting part is not the, uh, the dead shot, like, the action sequence that takes up the end, it's the, the scenes between Bruce and Silver. Oh, yeah. Um, although I do, I do love how, how, de- how Floyd Lawton escapes from jail, and we'll get to that part, I'm sure, but, uh, oh, yeah. that, that part cracked me up, so. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> okay, good, going through this, uh. <laughs> A page at a time, or like you said, a relatively a page at a time. Uh, I personally love the splash because you get the you get this great shot of the Batcave. You get the giant Penny, the T Rex, the giant Joker card, and some of the Batmobiles in the background. And and uh, this is the you know it, it is weird. We do have the two Batman intros here, like we pointed out. It's it's weird that we get 
the you know an almost legendary figure and then toward the bottom of the page we get the the bat shape with the you know orphaned as a you know blah 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 we get that one too so it's like we don't need both guys pick one you know <laughs> but uh but did you did you like the splash i did i i thought it was i thought there was too much text on it that was just like like too many balloons like even like the way that the um the creator credits are all in their own little caption boxes and everything like that. And with like the, like, it just seemed like there was, there was just too much like writing in different boxes, kind of like separating it and everything like that. But I like the image. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's kind of funny. The Deadshot Ricochet uh, title is written inside a bullseye. And actually in the original story, uh, Deadshot actually had a Deadshot signal uh, installed at police headquarters. It was a bullseye uh, th- that flashed in the sky. Although it looked like there was like a sale at Target, you know. <laughs> but but <laughs> now I'm assuming that the Malay penguin Robin is holding is the fake, and he, you know Robin's bringing it there for the trophy room, and that Batman didn't keep the real one for his trophy room. <laughs> I was thinking that I was like, shouldn't that be in police evidence right now? Like, why do you, why do you still have that? It's Q Indiana Jones saying that belongs in a museum, you know. So <laughs> I don't know why Indy sounded like Adam West then, but uh, <laughs> wow. I don't know what happened. Uh, there, there's a, there's a wow. Adam West is Indiana Jones. There you go. There's there's a thought, food for thought. Um, yeah, I, I love the scene of Batman and Robin just horsing around because you know it's kind of like what you pointed out in the last issue with that little hand wave. It's it's refreshing to see these two with a healthy relationship because I am really sick and tired of the angsty rift between these two characters. I mean, I, I, I'm not saying they can't disagree from time to time, but it's actually more mature and realistic for them to act like this than to constantly be at odds with each other and even like, you know, trade blows. And, you know, I mean, there's versions of that dissolution that, that I like that I, I think the animated series did the the best version of the angry split between Batman and Robin, but I'm one of those guys that prefer that, you know, the, the pre-crisis version where Dick Grayson just walked into the cave and handed his over his Robin costume like a man and rode off on his motorcycle, you know? I mean, so... <laughs> Uh, what did you think of the uh, the wrestling match? <laughs> it was fine. It was kind of silly, but I, I thought it was fine. I, I was, I, I I couldn't help but think I was like, oh, this was something that Doctor Wortham would have like freaked out about. But yeah, it, oh I, yeah, yeah. But yeah. It, I I liked it. I there was one part actually at the bottom of page two, something in the cave in the background. There's something holding dice. It's like a dice shooter or something like that. Some giant yeah. prop, and I can't tell what that is. Yeah, I've seen that before too. I can't. I I read what that was one time, and I can't remember. Is one of these books that told like all what all the trophies were, yeah, and because we also see the like the giant, the giant chessboard and everything when they're fighting. But yeah, you see Thomas Wayne's Batman costume and. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so yeah, if guys, if you know off the top of your head or can do some research, listeners, uh, put in the comment section what the dice thing is because I, 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 I know I read about what it was and what comic it's from, but I, I can't think of it off the top of my head. So uh, then uh, Robin gets a Teen Titans call from Wonder Girl, and it's clearly again, it's clearly the seventies because Donna is not wearing a bra. Uh, <laughs> My, wow, <laughs> my like, boy, Marshall Rogers, bless your heart. Um, yeah, my note was just Wonder Girl Donna Troy is a stone cold fox, and her outfit is so seventies hot that basically the only thing like she needs is instead of wearing those black boots, like if her pants were just bell bottoms, 
Like, she wouldn't need to change anything else to go out to, like, Studio 64 or to be in Boogie Nights or something like that. 64? Really, Ryan? Studio 64? I'm sorry, guys. I, I have no excuse for that one. And I also know that I forgot to say the word squad at the end of suicide a couple of times earlier in this segment. Next time I record with Chris, I need to remember to wake up before we actually hit record. Yeah, she she's definitely rocking it. I mean, it's like, you know, I mean, I thought I thought George Perez had it locked down with, with Donna Troy in this outfit, but I don't know, man. Marshall Rogers might give him a run for his money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then yeah. at the at the bottom, okay, so I it's been a long time since I've listened to Hub's uh, TT Wasteland. Was Dick ever romantically involved with Joker's daughter, Duella Dent? I think they floated around because, you know, she first appeared in the Robin stories in Batman family as the Joker's daughter, as Catwoman's daughter, Scarecrow, Riddler, Penguin, uh, which oddly enough, the figures toy company that makes those uh, reproduction Mego type figures is like coming out with a figure of like every single one of those. Wow. It's like the, the Joker's daughter head in like a Catwoman costume or a Penguin costume. It's it's really kind of strange. And I mean, more power to anybody that wants them, but it's like. That's that's even too deep dive for me, guys. I'm just it's like <laughs> Joker's daughter. Okay, I'd have that in my collection. The rest of them, I'm like, yeah, no. Uh, I, you know, I don't really know. I don't remember Dick having particular flirtations with any of these characters in the in the Teen Titans book. And like, like Bob Rosakis was writing Teen Titans and Robins stories in Batman Family, and then later on in Detective when Detective absorbs Batman Family. So he Dick had a a regular girlfriend named Lori uh, at Hudson University. So I, I don't really recall there being like a lot of flirtations between any of those characters at this time. I mean, uh, Robin seems more sexed up here than he <laughs> than he does in his own <laughs> stories. Uh, but, you know, I mean, so does Batman. I mean, obviously, you know, Engelhart's taking these guys. These are two, two young, good-looking dudes about town, you know, <laughs> basically. You know, and it's the 70s, so hey, you know, but... Uh, yeah, yeah, but that you know, Batman's like you're seeing a lot of Wonder Girl and the Harlequin out here. You know, it's yeah. just yeah, it's like uh, you got two two ladies going on, huh? It's basically, it's kind of this weird weird conversation. But that that picture of Duella Dent is probably for for many years she was like she was jettisoned post crisis. I mean, yeah, like every other Titans character still existed in some form, even. Batgirl became Flamebird, you know, the original mm-hmm, Batgirl. Mm-hmm. But poor Joker's daughter slash Harlequin was totally written out for years until somebody said, oh, no, she was part of it. But uh, so, yeah, that, that's been a weird footnote in this story being reprinted in like the greatest Batman stories ever told, where they actually color her hair green. When, when, her, when she was Harlequin, she changed her hair to like purple. Mm. So in the original, her hair is colored purple. We're spending way too much time, time talking about Duella Dent, but... Uh, <laughs> But I do, I, I I do kind of. It is a kind of weird for last time. Robin's like, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna stick with you, stick with you till the end with this, you know, with Thorn and everything. And then he's like, oh, I got a Teen Titans call. I really, you know, I really need to stay with you. And Batman's like, no, go. And he's like, okay, you know, he just. <laughs> it's kind of like, wait a minute, what happened to you sticking with him till the end? And the funny thing is, Teen Titans number fifty three is the last issue of the series. They break up at the end of that issue. So Dick like had lots of free time. He could have came back <laughs> and helped Batman. So 
you know what my thinking is? Like, even though he's all smiles and they're palling around and they're you know pretend fight, they're like sparring and wrestling match, like in the in the Batcave. Dick is still pissed off from the last issue when he, you know, he laid out his whole answer to the Penguin's plan, and Bruce was just like, "Wrong," <laughs> and now Dick is like. Okay, screw you. You get yourself out of out of hock with uh, Rupert Thorne. I'm leaving. <laughs> yeah, he's it's driving like, his motorcycle back to Hudson. Yeah, he's, he's like, like once wrong, we get Penguin back behind bars, I'm taking off. It's like, yeah, <laughs> he's running through his head. Wrong, wrong. I'll show you wrong. You know. It's like, <laughs> so then we cut to the Gotham prison where Penguin is being put back into a cell, and his cellmate uh, Floyd Lawton is giving him grief for coming back. But then Penguin's throwing shade at Lawton. By the fact that he's never escaped prison while, you know, Penguin's been in a revolving door, mm-hmm. which I, I think is a neat angle because, you know, these lesser villains like Deadshot, who literally haven't appeared in 27 years, mm-hmm. uh, you know, is, is like, you know, it's like, oh, you're back. And this Penguin's like, well, at least I leave every once in a while. You know that? Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I like that. Yeah, like it's like how come the Penguin and Joker and Two Face and Scarecrow get to leave whenever they want? It seems and somebody like so. Yeah, this was like one of my favorite parts of the thing. Like the Penguin's like, yeah, but I got this like, trusty little device. This is my you know escape gimmick. And, and Floyd's like, oh, let me see that. Joint. He's like, all right, I'm gonna get. It's like, hey, hey, give that back. It's like, no. Why do you get to escape? Yeah, he just and he just like he instantly uses it. He doesn't wait for like you know later at night when the you know maybe not as 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 busy or something. No, he just instantly blasts the you know like makes a ring in the wall and cuts a hole in the wall and just leaps out of the prison. So I, <laughs> yeah, I love that. That was a nice bit. <laughs> so then we cut to uh, Rupert Thorne's office, and I do have to say. For whatever reason, in the past two issues, Jerry Serpe has miscolored Rupert Thorne's hair. In the last one, it was brown. In this one, it's like strawberry blonde in the original. And it's like, dang it, Jerry, his hair's white. You're throwing the game off by coloring this wrong. And they fixed it in the uh, whoever colored it in the greatest Batman stories ever told. Uh, some of the coloring kind of, yeah, but at least they made his hair white. So mm-hmm. uh, is it white in the in the Rogers book you've got? Well, it's white in this one, but you're right. I forgot to mention it in the last issue. Uh, it's still brown in the previous okay. issue uh, in in the Rogers reprint issue. So, yeah, uh. they they screwed that up, and I don't know why. Like, because I think I thought Rogers went back himself and recolored some of these or redid some of these, but yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. I, but yeah, I do love the fact that Batman literally like he just emerges from the shadows in the corner. That. Mm-hmm. That is a really cool shot. I mean, you get you wonder how long he was standing there. He was like, you know, was he standing there like for forty five minutes in the shadows or something, <laughs> just waiting for the proper moment when you know Thorn put his hands, you know, his head in his hands and just like you know. Uh, but yeah, I it's it, it's great. I, I do have to wonder though. You know, Batman gives him a good speech. You know, it's like now you're gonna, you know, you know, I, I give you a chance to to do this peacefully. Now you're gonna do it the Batman's way. It's like, well, what? What way really is that? You know, is he going to dig up evidence on him? Because this is, like we said, this is before Batman would, like, you know, actually cripple the guy or, you know, you know, do something horrible to him to, to basically, you know, put actual actual fear of, you know, death in him. You know, so I know the way the storyline goes, but what would Batman, had he had the time and not got involved in with another criminal, what would he have done to... To, to get you know to to win against Thorn, I, I don't I don't think we'll ever really find out. Right. 
On page six, uh, the middle panel when Batman is right up in his face, I love the shadowing effect that uh, that uh, Rogers uses to convey the the shadows over Bruce's mouth and and on and sometimes he he uses that effect a lot and sometimes I don't like it like the um, what is that technique called? Uh, craft knit zipatone. Yeah, that... I think the zipatone effect. Yeah. 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 And sometimes I don't like that effect. I don't think it's always as effective, but I really like it on this panel. I think it works really, really well to create the shadow over like the the lower half of his jaw and and over Thorn's face. Yeah, it's even making the the bad ears over over Thorn's a face. I like that. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah. Uh, you know, I will say though, I did I don't like the ghost effect of, of strange on page seven, like the last issue, I didn't really bring that up, but that, that one image of the, the huge image of, of Hugo Strange's face. That was so, it almost looked like it was like from some psychedelic sixties, mm-hmm. um, album cover or something, or, you know, it's like, a I've seen a black Sabbath clip where they're playing on some like British TV show. And there's some, this some image of some guy, like some bald headed guy with glasses, like superimposed over Ozzy Osbourne. That's what it made me think of. You know, it, it it looked like super. It was super cool. This one's more of just your standard comic ghost or invisible man type look, where it's you know he's white. There's parts of it you can see through, and it's still cool, but it's just it's not nearly as haunting and effective. But he's he's humanoid size this time. He's the same size as he would be, and right. and but I do like the panels of of uh thorn just like blindly swatting at him you know and and then he looks up and he's gone that's pretty cool <laughs> mm. so yeah we're definitely establishing that uh, this ghost of hugo strange thing is is gonna keep going somewhere uh so we'll see where it goes uh we get another crowded street scene we pointed that out last time uh in death strikes at midnight and three that uh in front of the theater district here we get another rogers uh, street scene that's i mean you know again we pointed out that marshall rogers was an architect student um i mean this is a this is perez level of of detail mm-hmm. in, in this street scene i mean it's i don't even want to know how long it took him to draw this you yeah, know? this looks like new york this looks like he took a photo from new from the street of new york and just redrew it yeah yeah definitely I, I'm, I'm sure he probably snuck some people he knew into into some of these people in the foreground and mm-hmm. And some of the buildings are like you know actual buildings. It's it's really sharp, and uh, yeah, it's 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 a really nice it's a really nice establishing shot. It it establishes you know they're in downtown Gotham. It looks like it's early morning because it's you know it's supposed to be early morning. Right. Uh, we get that shadow effect again. What did you think of the panel? Like uh, let's see, it's panel one, two, three, four. It's panel five. Um, yeah. that's page eight. Yeah, where he's looking up. And, and, yeah, it's a great effect because, you know, he's just wearing his three-piece suit. He's, he's like, walking with silver in the daytime and everything. But as he's thinking about his double life as Batman, we get the shadows falling over the top part of his head. So it looks like he's wearing the cowl effect where, like, there's just the, the sunlight is beating on his, his mouth and his chin where the cowl wouldn't cover. So the rest of him looks like it's, it's in shadow and gets the Batman effect. And then the panel right next to them as they're walking past the building you see the shadow of the Batman on the in the windowsill, 
Um, yeah. But I, so I really think that's – and then even in the next page, when they're in the convention hall and they're talking to Gordon and Gordon is talking about Deadshot, I notice like there's on – the, on the bottom panel, there's a subtle shadow that's – it's it just a pure black ink shadow over Bruce's face as he's listening. And to me, it kind of subtly looks like the effect makes Bruce's nose look more pointy like it's the Batman's nose. Yeah, I, I caught that too. Yeah, it's almost a Peter Parker Spider-Man yeah. <laughs> moment. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I think this is really interesting because in that panel, you know, here's Bruce talking to Gordon, and you just get Silver looking at Bruce going like, okay, why does he know? Right. What, one, why does he know Jim Gordon so well? And then Bruce goes on, oh, yeah, I remember him. He was the expert marksman. It's like, Oh, Bruce, no, 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 don't <laughs> just, you know, here he is acting like, you know, he's, you know, he's definitely showing an interest in this in front of her. And I mean, this isn't his usual arm candy bimbo that he keeps on, you know, there to to keep up appearances of being the the playboy. You know, this is this lady's way too smart for that. And he's about to figure that out when they go to dinner, uh, go to lunch and she starts grilling him, uh, which which I, I love it. I love this scene. Because, I mean, she's just like – and she brings up so much continuity. Like, you know, you used to even – you know, they say you could even contact Batman and, and uh, you know, you you, uh, you were very interested in crime back – you know, you know and, and it's kind of interesting because Archie Goodwin in particular, when he came in and briefly wrote Detective um, back in like the 100-page the, uh, giant phase of the title a few years before this – he had even made a point to like take Bruce Wayne back to more of the idle playboy persona. And Gordon even calls him out on it. It's like, you know, I don't know what's gotten into you, Bruce. And, and so it's kind of like, you know, that's kind of where Englehart's running with that. Bruce has this image like this silver sees past it, but she recalls how Bruce was once very civic minded and even more, even beyond, you know, what he does with the foundation, which I think is interesting that Bruce gets, kind of touchy about the fact that she kind of throws off on on him you know early when they first meet and they have their little lover spat but Mm -hmm. it's neat that Englehart's you know at this point even you know even working all this stuff in I mean even works in Alfred the amateur detective solo strip that Alfred had back in the 40s so it's it's he's he's really trying to um, you know, uh, align all the different interpretations of, of Bruce Wayne. And it, it really fleshes the character out in a lot of ways, that that aspect of the character. Because, you know, it, and God knows Bruce Wayne basically has no function, as far as I know, in most of the comics nowadays. He's literally just, you know, if Batman's in the cave with his cowl off, that's your Bruce Wayne. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it became that way. But here, you know, he's actually trying to, uh, rectify some of the different portrayals of of, of Wayne, which I think is cool. Yeah, and I, I love the the fourth panel of um, on page eleven when Silver is just like leaning forward, like with her her hands kind of folded together and her chin on her hands, and it, the caption is "And Silver St. Cloud keeps her own counsel as she's just sort of scrutinizing him and and holding." I was like, that would be an uncomfortable meal. <laughs> yeah, and, and Bruce looks kind of sheepish when he's. Mm-hmm. He looks like he's kind of like, oh, whoops, yeah. you know. It's like yeah. in the in the, I mean, the body, uh, you know. That's that's you know, Rogers is really good with body language. Yeah. We've, I mean, I've really noticed that, and and he's, and I think he just keeps honestly keeps getting better as as these stories progress. But you know, I mean, he's you know he's basically learning as he goes here. So yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, then we get a nice establishing shot of Batman. It's just another you know Rogers 
you know, it's Batman. He's going to take some panels to just show off a cool Batman pose on the uh, the fifth panel on on page eleven, and uh, then we get into the flashback with Deadshot. It's nice to see. Uh, it's nice to see Rogers draw the uh, older Batman costume with no oval and the smaller capsules. You can't really see Batman's ears if they're shorter because the caption box covers them up. But I'm assuming he drew shorter ears on him. So uh, that's cool. And you get to see Deadshot in his original outfit. Uh, I actually just went back and I had never read that story from Batman 59 um, uh, before this because I never had access to it. For whatever reason, I don't recall it ever being reprinted where I could find it. Um, so, you know, thanks to DC Universe, I was like, well, I can, you know, I'll see if it's on there. I think it's, there's a run of Batman comics from issue number one, like up through 59, and then it jumps ahead to the Silver Age, like the new look Carmine Infantino era. So I was lucky they still had the, they had this one. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it's, it's an interesting story because... I mean, Batman does come across as being pretty petty toward Deadshot because he's kind of got his feelings hurt about the whole thing before he knows he's up to no good. Mm -hmm. He suspects he does, but he doesn't know for sure. And him and Robin even like go out and figure out who he is and confront him with the fact that they know who he is, which is kind of like, would you like somebody doing that to you, Batman? That's like superhero code violation, you know? (laughs) I mean, it's like... And, and then, of course, he finds out, yeah, he's really trying to, you know, take over the, the mob and, you know, and, and, and kill Batman. But, I mean, before he started acting like a prick to him, Batman had no real way of knowing that. So it's kind of, you know, I mean, you, you know, in, from modern eyes, you're looking at it go, well, wait a minute, Batman. You know, I, I know this is your strip and you're the hero, but what, what what makes you think that you've got the, you know, why do you have the right to be the sole crime fighter in Gotham City? It kind of. It's kind of bat dickery in that story. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So uh, then we get the actual debut of Deadshot in his iconic red and silver and yellow outfit. So so what do you think of this, this look overall? It's a cool-looking outfit. It seems to me... I mean, because so many of those the Batman rogues debuted kind of like in the in the uh, golden and silver age their costumes sort of feel like a type a lot of them are based on suits or dresses or something like that so to have a a an actual costume that is high tech and involves like machinery and armor and things like that uh it doesn't seem like it says classic Batman to me like this puts him in the same world as who we'll see like Clayface 3 another Marshall Rogers creation that cut that debuts a few issues after this um even a little bit Mr. Freeze after he was sort of redone or more sort of like the um the superpowers toy Mr. Freeze which to me reminds me a lot of uh of uh, Clayface 3 mm-hmm. um it's a cool look um the uh, I have the same issue, like, with a character like um, Deathstroke, with, like, where you only get, like, the one eye, like, hole or something like that, like, where it's, like, he's got, like, this extra scanner on his eye, but then he actually, he can see through the mask, but we don't see his eyes, it's, I don't know, this weird Cyclops effect, it's, it's stunning, it's visually cool, but, I don't know, it makes him look a little bit inhuman, like he's a robot or something. Yeah, honestly, you know, it just now occurred to me, this Deadshot look is kind of similar to Deathlock, if you think about it. It's got yeah, yeah. 
same color scheme. He's got the scope in his eye, you know. It's mm-hmm. like, uh, it, you know, which Deathlock had been around for a few years at Marvel at this point. Yeah. So I'm not, I'm not saying that Rogers, like, you know, I'm not say, suggesting he ripped it off, but it, it seems like there might have been at least a thought in the back of his head uh, that, uh, you know, maybe it was just uh, permeated, and he may, may have never saw Deathlock, and this is just a one of those weird parallel development things. But yeah, there's there's something there, and I mean, it does it does give you that um, that Deathstroke. Uh, that you know it, it uh, prefigures Deathstroke and and I think this is even before Taskmaster which Deathstroke was kind of George Perez created Tas- Taskmaster for the Avengers and then turned around and created Deathstroke for the Titans and their similar looks in, in a lot of ways so yeah there's there's some shared there's some shared DNA amongst these characters it feels yeah. like the, the looks of them yeah yeah yeah, yeah. um I, I was just wondering, because Deadshot is attacking from the Ellsworth building. Batman actually name-drops that one. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming that was Inglehart giving a shout-out to Whitney Ellsworth. Yeah. Um, who I always remember because there were in the TV show Deadwood, the HBO Western series Deadwood, there was a character named Whitney Ellsworth. Um, oh, really? I, yeah, and I always wanted, and I think it was, because the, the show dealt with a, a number of real life characters but i'm pretty sure that character was an original creation just for the series um but i always wondered if like they knew i was like that's strange to have a character named whitney ellsworth i was like could he the the character of the show possibly have been a homage to this comic book creator i don't think so but it would be weird and but i was also like i was i just looked up i was like i don't think i don't think whitney ellsworth ever worked on batman or anything in the batman world well, he was a he was a like a top like a head editor at DC. You know, I think he, I think he was fairly up high up the food chain, and I know he was involved in the uh, the Adventures of Superman TV show. So that he might have, I think he may have stayed in Hollywood after that ended. So he may have had some connection to somebody that was producing Deadwood or something. That's why they used the name or something. You know, it might have been some kind of hand down thing because i know he like eventually left comics and i think he stayed in hollywood so uh but i think at one time he was he was influential in the dc offices because i believe it was him who basically demanded that they put snapper car in the justice league so (laughs) (laughs) so so kids could have somebody to identify with so uh yeah i don't know i think i don't know if he was like you know editorial manager or what i think he was like over the editors at one point he was like right below uh, Leibowitz and those guys, I think. So, yeah. So, I mean, that that's that's probably why he gets a a shout out here. And and then you know when we we'll get inside, we see a shout out to Superman editor Mort Weisinger too. So, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. So yeah, it's it you know the, not necessarily you know not 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 Jack Schiff or or those you know longtime Batman editors. Which I is wonder kind of if I wonder if it's possible any of these guys like gave Engelhart a, a like. Part a boost in his career, or they he had some sort of personal connection with them because I couldn't think of anything else like where they would have a direct Batman connection, but maybe, yeah, I don't know, yeah, I don't know, yeah, that's why I know you know Mort Weisinger hired Jim Shooter and Carrie Bates when they were teenagers, they were and they were still working in comics, but uh, I don't know about Englehart, I know Englehart was young, but uh, you know, I, I'm not sure, that's a good question, but uh, I I do like that Englehart, you know, he really. Uh, you know, he, he gives us the idea that, you know, Lawton has just, he, he's sat in the prison, just thinking about this moment for years. He's literally like a coiled spring that has just snapped. You know, I mean, he's like, he's out, he's not going to screw around with Batman. Now he's just going to straight up shoot him. You know, I mean, he's just going to kill him. Uh, he's not playing any, he's not into playing the games 
that uh, like the penguin was last issue. You know, he's he's out for revenge. He's not. You know, he tried the. He even says he tried the. You know, the 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 cunning tact of you know like basically replacing Batman, and then when that didn't work. It wasn't look like it was going to work. He was just going to kill him. Well, this time he's just he's not even going to play around. It's just uh, it's 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 actually a nice um, it's a nice break from the you know he didn't like send a bunch of clues to taunt Batman. Well, who could this be? And then Batman figures out it's some criminal he fought like years and years ago that he had forgotten about. No, he just he shows up where he knows Batman's going to be looking for him and shoots at him, <laughs> which, is, which is actually refreshing. You know, it's like, I've got these guns. I've got this tricked out costume. Now I'm just going to straight up assassinate your ass, you know, <laughs> <laughs> which, which does kind of bring me to my one hang up with this. Okay. Um, when it goes through the action that kind of dominates like the last six pages, um, it's it's quick and it's fun. I like the fact that they're playing on a giant typewriter. That's that's always fun. Um, yep. But I I think there was I think I was hoping for a little bit more with the fight choreography and how Rogers could have staged it. And it's because if you grant the premise that Deadshot is truly this max master marksman, like out of this world level like aim and everything like that. And now he's tricked out with like high tech weaponry and gadgets. I I think we need to have more attention drawn to how Batman actually evades his bullets because unlike another famous superhero, Batman isn't faster than a speeding bullet. Um, Like, so how is he not getting shot in these scenes? How is he able to dodge this realistically? If Deadshot is really worth his his reputation and worth his game if he's that good um which is why i i think i like deadshot more in a team or group setting when you've got other actual like super powered beings like a uh, secret six or suicide squad or something like that because his his talent his skill should sort of put him on that superhuman level and when he goes against batman i mean I, I mean, like, the law of numbers means Batman should be taking a couple of these bullets to the chest or something like that. Right. And the fact that he's not, like, so I just, if Batman is able to dodge bullets in this case, I think that needs more attention and more care given to the fight choreography and how he manages to do that. And I just didn't get that from this story. I think if I remember right, and it's been a long time since I read any of the early Suicide Squad, but I think... John Ostrander establishes that Deadshot basically he can't hit Batman. He's like he's got like a psychological block. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. yeah. And, it, and it all comes back from that first story where Batman. Because if you read that story, that first story, Batman changes the sights on him and he just keeps shooting at him. And although as close as he was, I don't know how he missed. But even with damaged sights, uh, I mean, honestly, if he just winged it, he would have hit him. Uh, but uh, but, you know, he literally was like he like his confidence was like shattered at the end of that story. And I think that's one thing Ostrander ran with. And I think Englehart, you know, probably would have been better served for Batman to like trash talk him, you know, basically like, you know, you can't hit me because, you know, I beat you once and I'm going to beat you again. And and, and you know, actually let, you know, actually let him fall apart again, you know, um, and, and, and I think that would have you know, answered your question that he really, I mean, he can shoot, try to shoot at Batman all he wants, but he's never going to hit him because he can't, 
he's like gonna he's he he subconsciously makes himself miss because he knows he's gonna fail anyway. Right. So, uh, but yeah, without that explanation, yeah, it's like why isn't he hitting Batman? You know, it's like because he could even he could even shoot the keys on the keyboard of the typewriter to make the carriage return and all that stuff. But the, I mean, the fight the fight's actually you know it's pretty neat to you know he's on the ball and and i looked up if, the, if anybody knows what the name of that ball is i just saw it called the type element ball i thought it had more of a specific name uh but i maybe i didn't look in the right place yeah. um but uh you know he you know I, I do like how batman you know he drops down i guess it seems like he shot batman that last time because he drops down into the to the carriage and like past the paper and and then you know he looks over in there and batman grabs him by his you know, head and which is didn't Batman do that? He did that in the bell tower in uh, yes, the first Bat- Batman the movie. movie. Yeah, the guy yeah, he knocked him into the bell. The bell. He reaches up with his legs, grabs him, slams his head into the bell, and drops him down. Oh boy! But Batman, no wonder doesn't, he... Batman doesn't kill, so that's you know we don't count that. Right, right, right. The Batman, yeah, and and so Englehart, man, they there's another scene they mm-hmm. got from him, you know. So. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, and so then you know, Deadshot's. I do like that he's down amongst all the equipment the inside the, yeah, you know, the tape and the ribbons, yeah, or the ribbon, the, I guess. Yeah, yeah, the ribbon in there. Yeah, it's like in case you folks didn't know, typewriters used ribbons, and yeah, it's a it's this whole crazy thing. I wonder uh, if this is I, I I wonder if this is a Remington Steel typewriter, which uh, Rob Kelly pointed out on after my last uh, Gene Colan uh, episode. Oh, is that where that came from? Yeah, I I haven't heard of it, but Rob says that uh, I knew that there was a Remington typewriter. I had forgotten about it when we recorded that, but Rob said that Remington Steel was actually a name for a typewriter. Oh, so where did Reddington Steel come from then? So Reddington Steel, Steel like in the in the story, the the name of the company must have been a riff on the on Remington Steel, the typewriter, and maybe that's what maybe that's what Englehart or or actually that would have been Jerry Conway. Maybe he had actually learned learn to type or something on one of those yeah um, and then maybe the tv show remington steel would have been riffing on that all oh, right right okay well now we'll well now we'll know so yeah. so <laughs> of course then we get the the famous final the famous final scene here is silver calls back to batman we get that lovely shot of batman looking back over his shoulder which is very it's a that's that's kind of we're, we're seeing rogers approach his perfect batman right here in this panel he's getting close uh and these nice three panels as we get closer to silver and we see batman's reflection in her iris and she says it was bruce and then the shot of him as he's exiting the skylight still looking back at her i know it it was bruce so you get the idea that batman knows that she knows Mm -hmm. and uh we'll find out next issue and then we get the the last issue panel next at last the joker and more on the girl and the ghost, Detective 475 on sale the last week in November. And the Joker has his fedora on, which we haven't really seen him in since the 40s. Right, so, right. so, And we saw him putting it on as he was laughing on the roof a few pages back, too. So that was, uh, that was a nice touch. So, yeah, we're gearing up for the laughing fish, folks. So uh, exciting stuff. But, yeah, I, I love that uh, that last bit where where silver you know she figured i mean all she has to do is take one good look at batman (laughs) and she knows (laughs) oh if only lois lane were this smart guys that's all (laughs) so what do we think overall it's a good story i mean it's it's fun um for being i guess 
more or less like a, a last minute kind of filler or something that uh i mean if Engelhart had more like the arc of this story all kind of plotted out and he needed to just drop something else in uh i think he he made the best of it because yeah you know half of the story is you know dominated by this this really fast frenetic action sequence with batman being shot at and having to dodge the bullets and taking out the villain after the villain escapes um the other half of it is really just setting up okay get robin out of here because robin's not going to be involved in the climax but we also we really need to set up what's going on between bruce and and silver and i think that was the meat of this issue and that was the part that i really really enjoyed yeah me too and it kind of makes me wonder how would this have worked without this issue i don't think we would have cared about silver or bought her uh, i mean when would they have done the i mean he must have shuffled things around yeah, you know because yeah. he, he, at some point she had to figure out when would she have figured out he was he was batman you know and and uh yeah so i i'm definitely glad we got this issue because i think it without it i i wonder how if we would have been missing some of the establishing elements that that really make this overall arc sing you know and, and hold together so right. yeah okay we'll take another quick break and then we'll come back with your listener feedback on the previous episode the time is out of joint the time is out of joint the time is out of joint The year is 1994, or 1944, or maybe 2994? Time is under threat, and history is falling apart. Who will survive this crisis, and how will history be changed for those that do? Zero Hour Strikes takes you back to that DC Comics crossover and covers the entire story, issue by issue, tie-in by tie-in, as the DC Universe goes down to zero. Join Bass and Siskoid at fireandwaterpodcast.com or on iTunes, Zero Hour Strikes, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Remember, Legion. Last episode, we discussed the passing of writer-editor Denny O'Neill and filmmaker Joel Schumacher. We also presented an audio presentation of the O'Neill Roger story, Death Strikes at Midnight and Three. The episode got nearly 30 comments on the website, fireandwaterpodcast.com, but half of those were just Chris, Michael Bailey, David Ace Gutierrez, and Martin Gray talking about the superhero movie Bracket Show yet again. So we're going to skip that whole conversation. If you want to read that, go to the website. Moving on to the relevant comments, uh, Michael Bailey from the Fortress of Baileytude network of podcasts said... I just got to the point where Chris put forth that the prose piece would have made a good animated short like DC did back when they launched the direct-to-DVD animated movie line. On the one hand, I agree. On the other hand, the point of those shorts was to showcase other DC characters that weren't getting full movies. So while it would have been cool, it would have also defeated the point of those shorts. We're doing those because most of our movies are JLA, Batman, and Superman, so more Batman. Then again, that seems to be DC's current mission statement, so maybe Chris is secretly working for DC. (laughs) Then Michael says, probably not. I know he hates a lot of what has happened at the company in the past 20 years. (laughs) Yeah, no, I'm not working for DC. If if I was working for DC, things would be a lot different at DC, I'll tell you that. But yeah, yeah. (laughs) I get his his point, but I still would love to see... You know, I I know we've got enough Batman, but I'd like to see a good Batman animated short like that. You know, I, you know, 
So, yeah, yeah. but I, I get where he's coming from. Right. I, uh, I, I don't. We. I would be fine getting one of those and another Jonah Hex one, or another Spectre one, or another whoever. Pick any other random character that doesn't get the whole movie treatment. Yeah. Right. Right. So. Uh, Tim Price said, I haven't read this story, but it sounds amazing and an interesting experiment based on the images posted. Definitely intrigued enough to try it someday. Thanks for sharing such a unique example of Denny storytelling. Uh, that was actually, that was a recurring theme. We got a couple of people commented that they had never read this story before. Some had never even heard of it. Um, so they were all very, very happy that we covered it, which I guess I, I took for granted because of the fact that it is in the greatest Batman stories of all time. But I guess a lot of people haven't read that. Like, just maybe that was just my own kind of bias, assuming that of course everybody should know this story. Um, so I was surprised a lot of people hadn't read it. But they, uh, yeah, they all seem to get a kick out of our presentation of it. So that's cool. Yeah, it, it's kind of interesting that they. It might be one of those cases where it is a pro story. When they were reading the comics, they just kind of passed over it, even if they have that book. So yeah. maybe. Well, I mean, actually, we're gonna we're, that, that goes right into what Martin Gray said. Uh, Martin Gray from the blog Too Dangerous for a Girl said, "I remember this appearing and was far too lazy to read it." So, there you go. <laughs> there you go. Uh, Martin said, "It's funny. I enjoy comics and I enjoy prose, but have never gotten along with the text pieces that have spot illos or illustrations." Uh, but this sounds rather decent. I love that. Sh- I love the shopping list of what makes Gotham Gotham. As for that Woodland Wayne Manor, perhaps it was former architectural student Marshall Rogers using a non-canon piece as a place to suggest a new look. Uh, we're going to talk about the uh, the look of Wayne Manor. Well whether it's Wayne Manor or the Wayne Penthouse. We're going to talk about that towards some of the co- comments at the very end of this one. Uh, mm-hmm. So we'll come back to that, but uh, put a pin in that one. Yep. Uh, Liz Ann Oswalt responded to something we said in the comments on Paint a Picture of Peril story about Batman using a martial arts role to defuse the impact when he falls into the trap. Liz Ann said, Ah, falling face first or the flare bump. In judo, you learn that on day one with rolls. That falling on your back side rolls in one throw. You best get it right or they will drop you. Mostly you fall a lot. So get used to the mat. You'll be on it a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, Dr. Ange from the Supergirl blog praised our review for the story and then said, As for Keaton, I just don't want him to be the Flashpoint Thomas Wayne Batman. Make him an old Batman and I'll be happy. I think Keaton is the best tortured Bruce Wayne in cinema. Just crazy enough. I think Bale did the best job of playing the playboy, immature, rich kid Bruce Wayne. I hope Keaton gets to play the role again. Yeah, I don't think anybody wants him to play Flashpoint Bruce Wayne, Thomas Wayne. Um... Except for maybe like the, uh, well, I was going to say, I was going to kind of say snarkily, you know, maybe the people who've only been reading comics for five years and think Flashpoint is awesome, but that's not fair. That's not fair to them. Like, those stories have their fans, and and that's, you know, I, I get it. Um, well, if they if they want Thomas Wayne, I mean, they, Jeffrey Dean Morgan he, played Thomas he Wayne. Played it, yeah. he would He's be, a popular yeah. actor that would I, I kind that of got the impression it. that he was cast to play that type of Thomas Wayne role if they, yeah. if they wanted to do something like that. I think that's why you get a guy like that to play is the, so that he can play the angry, vengeful Thomas Wayne Batman. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he could pull. He could definitely pull that part off. <laughs> uh, I agree about Keaton being sort of like the the tortured, hurt uh, Bruce Wayne, and 
Bale being like kind of like the the playboy rich immature one. I also think part of that is just that the the material that they were given. Uh, Christian Bale was given scenes to play Bruce Wayne like that in Batman Begins and in The Dark Knight, where he could kind of emphasize that. And I, I don't know if you know Keaton or Val Kilmer or George Clooney ever really got a chance to do a scene like that. Um, when the Amazing Spider-Man movies were coming out, I would hear people say, you know, Andrew Garfield was a much better Spider-Man because he was actually funny, and Tobey Maguire wasn't a funny Spider-Man. I'm like, well, Tobey Maguire didn't get funny dialogue. I was like, that's right. I mean, I'm not going to hold that against the actor for the performance because one character, like the Andrew Garfield Spider-Man, was written as a response to the other version that wasn't funny. So like, we need to give him those like lines and everything. So of course, you know. If that's the way the character is written, that's how he's going to be played. So I was like, I don't, I don't think that's necessarily fair to criticize one actor or the other because of the material that they get. But that's right, yeah. that's true. Uh, Jimmy McGlinchey wrote in to say, "I read this story in the greatest Batman stories ever told, and can remember the text in the story being slightly off, which ties into your story about Marshall Rogers being told the art had to be rearranged post him delivering the art." I really enjoyed the story, and O'Neill's words were very evocative, especially in his description of Gotham in the final fate of Milo Luz. I enjoyed the dramatic reading you both gave to the story listening to it. I had the notion that Anthony Toombs was used elsewhere in a subsequent Batman story. I thought it may have been the character from the Legends of the Dark Knight storyline, Blink, but he was called something else. The mind played a trick on me in that respect. I don't think there are many pros with illustration stories published with Batman. I know O'Neill did one in a mistree book, and of course, Grant Morrison wrote a full-length issue as part of his Batman run. Do either of you remember any other ones? Uh, the only other one I remember is one we brought up that's in Detective 500, which was written by the Shadows creator Walter Gibson and drawn by Tom Yeats. And then the I have not read that mystery one. I'm going to have to track who knew there was a Batman story snuck in a mystery comic. <laughs> I got to track that one down at some point. <laughs> I, I had forgotten about it, but yeah, I do remember the Grant Morrison written prose piece that came out. I, I think it was like, yeah, that was right after his first story arc, the Batman and Son arc. Um, and it was all about Joker and, and Harley mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And that was like, yeah, that, that was a tough one to read just because as he's trying, that was when he was first started to experimenting with the Joker being like a snake that sheds his skin and, and like recreates his image. Um, and I think that was the debut of when he first started calling him like the thin white Duke of death. Like it was a David Bowie version of Joker. That was, but I, yeah, that was a very cool, very interesting story. Um, but the other one that I thought of was one that I've actually done before, which was uh, Denny O'Neill and George Perez in Secret Origins issue 50, the last regular issue of Secret Origins, uh, which I covered with uh, Tom Panarese. And the story is The Glimpse, and it's a prose version of Dick Grayson's origin and basically the death of the Flying Graysons and how he first sees Batman. Uh, and I was partially inspired because Tom just read that story straight out when we when we covered it. Um, so that was partial inspiration when we got to this one. I was like, you know, let's just do that effect again when we get to Death Strikes Midnight and 3. Yeah, that was great. I remember that uh, when Tom did that. That was... Uh... He did a. You guys did a bang up job on that. So yeah, that's a. That's. I, I remember that one too, but I wasn't going to mention it. While <laughs> I was going to leave that for you to for you to mention. <laughs> and plus, any time that I can match those words to the Dire Straits song "Brothers in Arms," that was a that was a fun fun little bit for the episode. Oh yeah, that was a nice needle drop. Yeah. Oh, but you're you're the master of the needle drop. So. Oh stop. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't fishing for that, but yeah. Uh, we got a comment from Michael Ridge. Has he commented before? I don't 
if he did, I, I don't recall. If you haven't, if you have before, we apologize, Michael. If you, this is your first time, welcome. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> uh, he, he gave us a quotation. Get this and get it straight. Crime is a sucker's road, and those who travel it wind up in the gutter, the prison, or the grave. From the introduction to the Philip Marlowe Detective Radio Program. Uh, then Michael says, several podcasts that I listened to have spent an episode looking at the work of Denny O'Neill since his death. Your program was the second time this week I heard Denny's Batman say something similar to this line from a radio adaptation of the Hardboiled Detective's Adventures. The program was broadcast from 1947 to 1958 when Denny was between 8 and 19 years old. I'm pretty sure that this program must have been one of his inspirations as a writer. That would be very interesting, and it wouldn't surprise me at all. Oh, no, not at all. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and Michael said, I am enjoying your podcast more now that you have discarded the completest view of an index show. You know what? I am too. Yeah, me too. I'm glad to hear that too. I know some people probably aren't, but you can go listen to the Overlook Dark Knight. They picked up where we <laughs> left off. <laughs> Speaking your, of which. <laughs> keep your hands off my Alan Bray. My, sorry, keep your hands off my Norm Brayfogle stories because I do want to come back to those. Yeah, that's right. That's right. We're going to have a barbecue too with molasses. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> Speaking of which, Andrew Leyland from the Palace of Glittering Delights and Overlook Dark Knight said, I thought I was the only Bat fan in the world not excited about the Keaton announcement. I like the guy a lot. He's a great actor. But he's not this unassailable piece of comic book casting that has never been surpassed. He's no Chris Reeve, Chris Evans, or even Burt Ward. He was fine in those films, one of which is barely a Batman movie, but this nostalgia way really needs to come crashing down. Uh, well, I don't, you know, I, I, you know, I love Andy to death and we usually tend to agree on stuff. I don't really agree with him there, but he's certainly entitled to his opinion. But yeah, I mean, Michael Keaton is not the ideal casting. I don't think they, I don't think they have yet to cast a actor who is in my mind, the comic book Batman, you know, that's Mm -hmm. like, that's the, that's the character come to life like a Chris Evans or a Chris Reeve or Linda Carter or, you know, Burt Ward as a young Robin. I, you know, that's, I mean... Wait, wait, yeah. wait, wait, wait. You guys don't think Chris O'Donnell was a better Robin than Burt Ward? <laughs> I mean, you're breaking up the system. Then you would have had Chris Reeve, Chris Evans, Chris O'Donnell. That, that's the trifecta. Chris I, Hemsworth. Chris Pratt. <laughs> Chris, Chris Pratt, yeah. I don't understand how, what you're saying. So, okay. I know, yeah. I, yeah, yeah. No, I just, I, I, don't, I don't think, you know, I mean, I think Adam West is... The Batman up to a certain he like personifies Batman like up to the the Grim Avenger of the Night era you know uh, like from the the forties mid forties through like nineteen sixty nine that's he's that Batman you know mm-hmm. but other than that I don't think anybody's quite nailed it so I, I think I think the problem is the who everybody is sort of and maybe they don't even realize it but for a lot of us fans i think who we're measuring against is not michael keaton is not even the batman of the comics i think it is probably the batman the animated series version yeah i I think that that voice that performance of batman feels like the timeless one that is the one that can never be topped. That's like the perfect one, but it's not actually like, it's not the live action screen version. So I think really like everybody is kind of, if you don't have that voice, if you don't have that presence, but it's almost two different mediums. So it's hard to compare it to, you know, Kevin Conroy, but it's, I think that is, that is sort of like the, the hurdle, the thing that you have to be and live up to. Yeah. That's a good point. I mean, cause they synthesized everything Batman into that series and that's one reason why the cw crisis series it really 
burn my bacon they had conroy as batman as bruce wayne and he was like this twisted evil version of bruce wayne it's like you had the one shot Mm. of kevin conroy as a live action batman you could have just made him a straight up kingdom come bruce wayne and then you had to have him be the all dark you know i kill people like it it was hard the first time but you know the more you do it the easier it gets you know that type and he was great i mean i'm not throwing off on conroy's performance but it's like god dang it you had one damn chance to get Kevin Conroy as Batman on camera, and you had him be evil Batman. It's like, shit. You know? It's, <laughs> I was so mad at that. I'm like, oh, you hyped this up, and then you pull this? Mm-hmm. Ah, it's almost as bad as when they nerfed... They, they Brandon Routh was great as Superman in that, but then they nerfed him to give Luthor more crap to do. It's like you could tell Jeff Johns was involved. But yeah. <laughs> Although I'm loving his star, girl. I'll say that. Yeah. <laughs> All right, the next comment came from Captain Entropy. He said, gentlemen, you took a great story that, like Ange, I had never heard of, and you told it well and even produced it well. Thank you. I enjoyed this facsimile of an old-time radio drama. I listened to it the second time with one of my daughters, and she enjoyed it too. That's awesome. Cool. Very, cool. very nice to know. Thank you. Uh, Captain Entropy said, I agree that the little details and practical explanations were super enjoyable in the Nightfall novel, and it was great to see that Denny was already doing them in 1978. He really understood the differences between prose and comics and how to exploit each one's strengths. Regarding some of those details, I looked up Milo's Llama 25 caliber and found a little note to say about it. Llama was one name for a Spanish firearm manufacturer that had as many imprints as Martin Goodman's publishing companies. (laughs) Like Goodman, they had no qualms about copying competitors to mirror their success, and and gun patents don't last as long as character copyrights. Uh, The Browning 9mm in the story was probably the single-action semi-automatic high-power pistol that is so ubiquitous it wasn't worth looking up. But I did anyway, because I have a problem. Browning and its licenses produced high-power pistols in so many places that both Axis and Allied forces used them in World War II. Wow. (laughs) Wow, wow, war profiteering. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Seriously. (laughs) In contrast, the Burns Martin spring holster was entirely new to me and a real find. It was popular, effective, and had some interesting history tied up with the Fairburn Sykes Commando Dagger. Burns Martin designed a few different configurations. All of them used spring tension to retain the firearm instead of a latch or strap, making quick draw possible. However, the design only worked for revolvers, so Denny made a mistake having Benny use it for his semi-auto 9mm. He was in good company, though. Ian Fleming made the same mistake regarding James Bond's Walter PPK. Mmm, wow. And then, regarding 70s Batman using fear more than fisticuffs, I also approve. Not only does it make him seem less sadistic and more enjoyable to read, it makes him more realistic. Anyone with any sense... Anyone with any sense would want to minimize both his opportunities to lose and the number of impacts on his bones and joints. After all, he still has to be mobile when Dark Knight Returns rolls around. That's right. Uh, Then Captain Entropy continued, I believe the home we see Alfred Kling in Rogers' illustrations was the same penthouse we always see atop the Wayne Foundation building. The big architectural flourish of the building was a giant tree in the center and and normal-sized trees on top. Those trees were the ones visible in the window. If memory serves, they were meant to signify the Wayne Foundation's commitment to the environment. They probably also helped Bruce feel at home. 
And Ward Hill Terry agreed with Captain Entry when he added 12 miles away. That's what the text says when it cuts to Alfred in the mansion. Uh, Ward says, using New York City as an analog for Gotham, Manhattan Island is longer than 12 miles, and there are greater distances within city limits across the boroughs. Wayne Manor was still in the past and future at the time of publication. Uh, but uh, I, I wrote my I actually wrote in the comments that, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I hear what the guys are saying, but I see that, you know, in, in the the drawing that we see of the uh, the building, I think Terry Austin did that was in the uh, one of the treasuries. Uh, we see that there are often other trees drawn around the penthouse, but Marshall Rogers draws what appears to be a moat around the house and a pond lake beyond that. So I don't think that's the roof of the skyscraper. It could be, but, you know, I kind of doubt it. Uh, but then Captain Entropy came back and said, Chris, would you deny the 1% are skyscraper top koi ponds? Is this even still America? <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a big penthouse roof. If that, you know, that looked like a lake more than a pond. But yeah, I love that the koi pond, the one percent of koi ponds. That was fantastic, Captain Entropy. Thanks. <laughs> so here's the thing, I I think I might agree with them. I don't know. I've been looking at this picture of the building, the house, whatever it is, from uh, Destrix at Midnight Entry, and comparing it just to the aerial shot from uh, Detective 473 when they come back that morning and everything, and, like, seeing, like, the layout, the side of the building and what looks almost kind of like a chimney or some sort of utility thing to give it, like, a second floor. I don't know if it's perfect. I mean, yeah, there's, there's like, floodlights around or, like, security lights and maybe, like, electrical wires or something, and it does look like there's some kind of, like, like... I don't know. I don't know. I could I could go either way. I, I don't know what it is, but I could buy the fact that that is the penthouse on top of the building, and we see, like, the actual skyline within the city limits right there, like, next to it. Like, it's just, it's a little bit unclear to me, but it doesn't... Because the fact that Alfred is, like, the, the like in the bottom panel uh, on Death Strikes, like, behind him seems to be windows with the, the skyline and everything... I don't know. It's 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 not clear, but I I could be persuaded to believe that that is the penthouse. Yeah, I mean it, it can. I mean it could very well be. It it's just I think I think Rogers going you know for the deep like the he's put the camera like deep in the woods mm-hmm. uh, looking in, so that just kind of makes it feel like it's out in the countryside. It does. It really does. That was the vibe I always got, but I don't. I yeah, don't know. but it could it could be it could be it just it just it does seem like there's. There's like some a body of water, and maybe that's just the way that that it's colored. Um, you know, beyond that, maybe it's not a pond. Maybe that's just uh, grass up top, or you know, whatever. I don't. I, it, it could. It could be. I don't. You know, that's a mystery that I probably will never get to solve because, unfortunately, neither Rogers or Denny O'Neill are now with us. So right. you know, right. it's open to interpretation. We'll leave it that way. <laughs> Um, before we go, uh, we haven't looked at the iTunes or Apple podcast reviews in a long time because we went a long time without actually doing new episodes. Um, so I, I did want to give a shout out to, uh, the, the reviews that we've gotten just within the last year. Um, we got a five star review from CMS the first, uh, posted one year ago. It was titled favorite new podcast, which is awesome. And the review is just, I missed this show. Hope the guys ain't dead. <laughs> <laughs> really appreciate that one. Uh, yeah, we're not. We're not, so. we're not dead. Yeah. 
We got another five-star review from Sean Ross, our good buddy from the Pulp Pixel Network. Uh, he says, forever in my bat phase. And his review is, everyone has a bat phase where they are super into Batman, right? Well, for some of us, those of us with good taste, bat phase never ends. Good thing <laughs> there's... N- Good thing there's Nightcast. In this show, Chris and Ryan do a deep dive into post-crisis Batman as he grows from friend of the police to the Dark Knight of Vengeance we all know and love. Chris and Ryan have a great rapport and keep things lively, and Chris might know more about Batman than anyone ever. So, you know, you know that, that's the reason why these episodes tend to be like two hours long instead of 15 minutes. It's because of, Batman, it's because of Chris's Batman knowledge. <laughs> And Sean says, so grab a street punk, haul him up a building, and scream in a gravelly voice, listen to Nightcast. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, unfortunately, we're not covering what he reviewed us for now, but hey, I hope he's still enjoying it. So, <laughs> Last review, we got a five-star review from Lolabelle17. This is just back in April. It says, now even better. The review says, always fun, now covering all of the great eras of Batman. This change makes for more variety and helps you learn about and appreciate a wider range of creators. Great job, guys. Well, thank oh. you very much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. It's nice to, it's nice to see that some folks are liking the new, the new version <laughs> as much as we are, because I know we are. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I mean, ultimately, this had to be a, ch- a matter of us being the the number one audience for the show. Because if if we'd stuck with, well, you know, I, I think this has been better because I think the coverage that uh, Michael and Andy have given to the Jim Starlin, Jim Aparo issues uh, that we would have been going into, um, I think they they probably appreciate those stories more then certainly in the headspace I was at, if we had been doing that a couple of months ago, I, I probably would not have been as kind to the stories as those guys are. So it's it's nice that this little change of pace has put me in a much healthier, uh, creative place to, to talk about these stories. So Right, yeah, me too, definitely. Agree. So folks, that is going to be it for this episode. When we come back a month from now, we are going to wrap up this story arc and do the next two issues of Detective Comics featuring the Joker and uh, and bring an end to the uh, the Steve Englehart, Marshall Rogers run with the Laughing Fish storyline. So, going to be really Never cool. heard of it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm still in your bed. Never heard of it. That's fine, that's fine. Everybody take it, everybody who has fun with it. I was five and he was six. We rode on horses made of sticks. He wore black and I wore white. He would always win the fight. Bang, bang. He shot me down. Bang, bang. I hit the ground. Bang, bang. That awful Baby shot me down. Batman Nightcast is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Facebook page for Batman Nightcast. You can find me on Twitter at RyanDaily01 or email me at rdailypodcast at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter at supermatespod or email me at supermatespodcast at gmail.com. Special thanks to our Patreon supporters. For more information on how you can support the Fire and Water Podcast Network, visit patreon.com slash fwpodcasts. You can also support us by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Every review helps iTunes push this podcast to a wider audience. Batman Nightcast is also available on Spotify. 
This podcast is not affiliated with DC Comics, and the views expressed here belong solely to us. All music, audio clips, or quoted text is used for entertainment purposes, and no copyright infringement is intended. Thank you for listening. Bang, bang, he shut me down, bang.